everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Laid podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. We get to put uh, uh, a character on trial like we do once a month on here today. And I'm so excited. These are always my favorite episodes to record. I am uh, here with the jury of my friends and peers, and I'm very, very excited. Let me do a little bit of an intro. Uh, Marvel's Earth is rich with ancient history, hidden races, and lost civilizations, including the Inhumans as an example. Perhaps the most prominent among these is the underwater kingdom of Atlantis. Uh, So the canon in Marvel is centuries ago, the lost continent of Atlantis sank into the ocean and a new branch of humanity, that of Homo Mermanus, was brought into being a civilization of water-breathing Atlanteans, all with blue skin. They established a monarchy and built civilizations and cities under the water, the most prominent being Atlantis itself. In time, Emperor Thakor took over the ruling of the underwater empire, and in 1915, Thakor's daughter, Fen, who was the princess, discovered a ship full of humans. She fell in love with a man named Namor, excuse me, named Leonard Mackenzie, and grew pregnant after a brief tryst with him, soon giving birth to her son, Namor. He was born with Caucasian skin, pointed ears, and wings on his ankles, a mutant child, though he wouldn't learn this for decades. Uh, She named him Namor, which means avenging son. He appeared in 1939 for the first time, which was two years before Aquaman. Uh, He's considered to be Marvel's first mutant because he was the first to appear chronologically, uh, in that he was in the first book Marvel ever published. Uh, There was even a series called Namor, the first mutant uh, that ran for a while. He is a species unto himself, a hybrid of Homo sapien, Homo superior, and Homo mermanus. Uh, And we are here to put him on trial today. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined by an esteemed panel of good-looking, educated, and passionate jury members that I respect and care for, and I'm so honored to have them share their times and talents with me today. Uh, I'm happy to consider each of you my friends as well. I'll have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, Let me know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, uh, outside of your infamous appearances on the Gray Malkin Lane podcast in the past. (laughs) And and my question as you're doing introductions today is, what do you love about Namor? And do you have a favorite Namor story? Uh, Let's begin with uh, my friend, Sarah Century. Hi, Sarah. Hi, it's me, Sarah Century. It's so nice to be here. I enjoyed the last trial that we had, which just went up, which was the trial of Warren Worthington III. And I think that this is almost similar, right? Because they're both um, jerks. So I think that this will be fun. Um, You might know me from, I co-host Bitches on Comics, which is an interview podcast where we talk to a lot of queer creators predominantly. Like we took, there's some others in there along the way, but predominantly queer creators. A lot of times comics, but we talk to people from TV shows and all kinds of other things. So check out Bitches on Comics if you'd like. And I do a whole bunch of other stuff, but hey, let's not get into that now. My name is Sarah. I am she, her pronouns. And I love Namor, actually. I don't know why. I think that he's a character that does really well in like a backup capacity. I see him... Uh, I remember reading like Earth X comics where he's Namor the Accursed and like he catches on fire every time he comes up above the water. So that imagery just in and of itself will carry this man forever. Like I always remember that and kind of how he he dooms himself again and again. Right. Like we see we'll see that plenty today, but it's definitely like somebody who does kind of uh, morally questionable things, always regrets it, doesn't always make the right decision. And he puts himself in these kind of bad positions 
but I like that about him, I guess. And I also just kind of respect his horniness as a character. Like, I think that he shows up, pecs popped, you know, like glistening abs and, you know, has all of these girlfriends that are amazing, honestly. Like his girlfriends tend to like vanish, right? As soon as like the story's over. And I hate that. And I hate how he talks to women a lot of the time, but I do appreciate that he's constantly shooting his shot because who wouldn't respect it, right? He's got the game. He's going for it. As he's out of everybody in Marvel, he's always going to be the one who shows up like drenching wet and just like, what's up? And I'm just like, you know what? I'm here for it. I think probably my favorite story with Namor is going to be the Marvel's story whenever they retell that Golden Age story of the the Human Torch versus Namor. So it has a beautiful Alex Ross painting, you know, just gorgeous, gorgeous. Like he's not even a central character in that. That's kind of the thing is it's hard for people to make him work, I think, when he's a central character. But as this peripheral character who's kind of a wild card, I think he works great. So that's what I love about him. Wonderful. Uh, let's go to Derek Kunskin next. Hi, Derek. Um, my name is Derek Kunskin. Uh, I'm a science fiction author. Uh, people, if if they haven't heard me on the Great Malkin podcast before, or they may have uh, seen my book, The Quantum Magician or The House of Sticks. Uh, I go by he, him. Uh, what do I love about Namor? Um, he's over the top all the time in the best possible Lee Kirby way. Um, my own experience with him is I've seen him in the Defenders, the Invaders, Supervillain Team Up, and the 1980s John Burns uh, series. I agree with Sarah that he's hard to make work as a primary character. I love him as a foil to Doctor Strange and the Hulk. Um, I have two favorite Namor stories, and they're both uh, in the Defenders. The first, after a period of soul searching, the Defenders are going through because one of their teammates has died. Uh, Namor and the original Valkyrie have this beautiful romantic moment and they almost consummate, but then they realize he's a prince of Atlantis and she's a handmaiden of Odin and the world's only brushed through the defenders. And then even then only rarely, but it was, it was a really vulnerable moment for the both of them. And you could see why they would like each other in a way that I haven't seen in other stories, which was really cool. Um, and then there's, there's a second one, and I'm not sure to include this in a favorite or not, but there was this absolutely silly defenders comic uh written by Jim Demetrius and where the defenders were lost in basically a sort of Dr. Seuss world and yeah. uh Namor had to get these ruby sneakers and put them on with his swimming trunks and I think he had to say there's no place like home and it was absolutely ridiculous and he was literally the fish out of water and although it's not a great story it is super memorable I love it very much. Uh, and Namor and Valkyrie are both creatures of other worlds who are also maybe just a little bit gay. <laughs> we'll just throw that out there in advance. Uh, let's say go. a lot of it. <laughs> let's go to uh, Noelle Reed next. Hi, Noelle. Hi, I'm Noelle Reed. She, her, um, host the X-Men Unraveled podcast. And I feel like my favorite thing about Namor is the way that he is caught between two worlds being like, half mutant, half human slash mutant, half Atlantean, and how it changes his actions and motivations. So even when he's on somebody's side, if they're not Atlantean, it is a very tenuous relationship. And you're always waiting for when is he gonna, when is he gonna turn on them? And so I think that that's really fun. Um, and so kind of along with that, my favorite story, I think is still his like introduction to the surface world. And you know, he sees humans as enemies and he has all these 
he has some really silly moments that you just have to laugh at him because he's the prince of Atlantis, but cannot function, doesn't know what's what on the surface world. And I just, I still think that's really fun. I love that. Uh, wonderful. And then uh, let's go over to uh, my friend, Susan Kirtley. Hi, Susan. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. It's fun to get to talk about uh, Namor. Uh, I, I'm Susan Kirtley, uh, she, her, and I am a comic scholar and educator, uh, director of comics studies at Portland State University. Uh, so I just love getting the chance to talk about comics all day. So uh, I um, really, uh, as many of you have mentioned, I uh, adore that sort of complicated nature, you know, because sometimes he's, you know, you know, rescuing animals from the zoo. And then sometimes he's like, you know, causing mass destruction and storming through New York City. And that, is, he's sort of, you just don't know what he's gonna do next. And I really enjoy that as a as a reader, like where's he going with that? And then it has also been mentioned that he's, he's this very sort of saucy character. Like he is working the smolder, you know, the eyebrow, like he is working that eyebrow. And it just kind of, it cracks me up every time when he comes out with those eyebrows and he's just working the smolder. And I, I just find it um, very, uh, it's it's fun as a, as a reader. Uh, and then in terms of favorite storylines, you know, I mean, there's, this has been a really fun, you know, um, project looking through these old comics that I have, haven't read for a while. I really enjoyed the um, the horror one, The Depths. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was cool because of the horror genre kind of mashup. I really enjoyed that one. I also, I don't know if this might is unpopular, but I like the, um, the Namor series where he's a teenager. It had these like CW vibes, like the angsty, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And that, that one was also a lot of fun, but there's obviously so many great storylines. Um, but, but I, I enjoyed those uh, ones in particular. And both of those, the art is just uh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Yes. Uh, Susan yes. is also a published author. That's, uh, that's important to note. Susan's been on the podcast once before. Susan, I had, uh, I had uh, Douglas Wolcon uh, more recently and I was like, and, and our recording, I'm like, do you know Susan? And he's like, yes, she's my boss. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> I just knew yeah. you were both in Portland as all, but that was a fun <laughs> connection to make. Uh, and then last but certainly not least, my my good friend Justin Wilder is with us. Hi, Justin. Hey, my name is Justin. My pronouns are he, him. I am co-host of the Ex-Wife podcast, one man's elaborate scheme to get his wife into X-Men comics that's working. Uh, she was a brand new fan, and now she is a diehard fan. Uh, we talk about the current era of books, the Krakoan era, and occasionally dive back into the deep continuity, talk to writers, talk to producers of the animated TV show, and just any way I can get her in. She's huge on cosplay. Uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm missing her. She's normally a, a part of these. And that's our, our fun, is just nerding out about this together. Uh, Namor. Ooh. I don't know him that well up until this this trial, and this was actually a really great experience. My favorite Namor story is not really a Namor story, he's, but he's there. It's X-Men Red. Uh, I just love the title. It's a lot of fun, and he plays a really interesting role that accesses where he is at that moment. And Gabby Kinney calling him Abslantis will always resonate <laughs> in my head. That's a panel that lives here rent-free all day, every day. 
because that's who he is. It's the it's the complexities. It's the variety. What Susan was talking about, just you could go in any direction with him as a writer because he's so layered, but also his confidence and, you know, just just walking in and doing whatever he wants and just being ridiculous. The handful of lines that he had when reached out to by Professor Xavier in House of X and Powers of Ten, I'm just like, you're just now realizing, realizing how great you are. You think I need you to tell me that I'm great? Get out of here, little man. <laughs> it was just like classic Namor. Brilliant, brilliant. And then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I won't review uh, my bio because the listeners already know me. I use he, him pronouns. I, uh, I like Namor a lot. I, um, Almost as much as I was an X-Men fan, uh, especially during my handbook writing years, I was also a huge Defenders and Submariner nerd. I kind of became known as like the X-Men Defenders guy uh, back on the handbook days. Uh, and I've, I've loved them for a long time. When um, when Marvel relaunched uh, in the 60s with the Fantastic Four after they were kind of, you know, 20 years post-World War II, they brought back Namor first in, Cap- in, uh, in the Fantastic Four. He's a homeless guy and... The, uh, the human torch burns his beard off and tosses some water on him. And he's like, oh, I'm Namor. I forgot. And he immediately <laughs> attacks the surface world. Uh, and then they brought back Captain America. There was this love for these characters that uh, have been adopted into the Marvel mythos uh, and are just beloved by so many. Uh, back then, they also had split books. They had like Tales to Astonish and Strange Tales and all those where featured characters uh, would share a book with somebody. And Namor was part of those. And then he got his own series that ran for quite a long time, just called The Submariner. And that's probably my favorite run, that old classic uh, where we really see his his uh, supporting cast. Uh, Dorma is one of my favorites. Uh, Tiger Shark shows up and Diane Arliss and Stingray and all these characters that I just I, uh, I hold very dear to my heart, even though they're not used often in the comics. Uh, we're going to focus, of course, on his appearances in the X-Men. And he first shows up in X-Men number six when Magneto and Xavier rush to try to recruit him. Uh, Namor also has a special place on the wall behind me. If you guys, you guys can see who are looking. I do therapy standing at this same spot. And if I lean this way, my clients can see shirtless Namor. But if I lean this way, they can see shirtless Kesar. And <laughs> and clearly, I'm a comic book nerd who also is gay. <laughs> That's all. I'll say. He's he's right behind my head, next to Magneto, and uh, and uh, he's uh, he's a part of all the views when I'm doing my work. Uh, so we're gonna jump in today with uh, with some discussion before we get into the trial portion. Um, as always, I'm going to present a little bit of information and then we'll have uh, just some focused discussion about it. So feel free to share your thoughts at any time. Uh, for the first part of today's episode, we're going to talk about Namor's history, his psychology and his powers. We want to stay outright. He has hundreds bordering into over a thousand appearances that stretch over nearly 90 years of publication history. He has ties to a lot of places, the Avengers and the Defenders and the Fantastic Four and the Invaders and so many others. And he's had a shocking number of solo series, both ongoings and limiteds and one-shots, things like the Saga of the Submariner and Namor the Submariner and multiple multiple versions of books just called the Submariner uh, and Namor the best defense and Namor into the depths. I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, for the purpose of today's trial, we're going to focus primarily on his his uh, connections to mutants. We're going to go back to his early origins and then focus mostly on his modern continuity. But for our listeners, uh, go back and research this character. Read some Wikipedia articles, pick up some old books. Uh, this is a fascinating character with a ton of history. He's all over the Marvel Universe, more connected to everyone else than maybe any other character, which is a bold statement, but I think there's some truth there. 
Namor has always been a man of two worlds. He's split in half constantly by his loyalties and connections to both. By nature and by nurture, he is of his mother, Fen, Atlantean boy without a father who looks like no one else in his realm, but also immersed in the politics of being royalty throughout his entire upbringing. And by nature only, he's like his father, Leonard Mackenzie, connected to a race of air breathers who constantly war with each other and destroy the environment that they live in, a culture he'll have to reckon with over and over as an adult. And we see this in the comics constantly. He's the king of a complicated political realm, first and foremost, and must constantly work to keep his kingdom safe and his citizens loyal uh, while he tries to stay in command. And it leads him to make difficult, sometimes cruel decisions constantly. His kingdom encompasses most of the planet, all of the ocean waters and what lies beneath them. But Namor's also split by his loyalties to the surface world. He doesn't look like the people that he rules, but he does look like, well, mostly, uh, the humans of the world above, those who constantly threaten his undersea kingdom. He's declared war on the surface world, most specifically New York City, so many times in the comics over the years that it's almost become a gag. Namor's split between his duties as a king and his desire for love and a life for himself, something that frequently results in tragedy. He's lost two wives to death and has even had to kill his own son on one occasion. Namor has an entire supporting cast with him that move from book to book, including Vashti and Namora and Bira and Dorma and Stingray and Phoebe Mars and Triton and so many others. Uh, quick note, because people will ask, Namora is a female version of Namor. She looks like a white lady with wings on her feet. Uh, she is revealed in the comics to have been created that way due to genetic experiments. And the character Namorita from the New Warriors is a clone of her. So these two are not technically mutants while Namor is. Namor also has an extensive rogues gallery, ranging from Dr. Dorcas, Warlord Krang, Atuma, Orca, Tiger Shark, Lyra, U-Man, uh, Destiny, not Irene Adler, but Paul Destin. And he's probably killed a hundred massive sea monsters and appearances over the years. When the humans on the surface world declared uh, World War II, Namor found himself drawn into the conflict, initially not taking sides as he sought to protect his own people, but he ended up uh, allying himself with the American invaders and other forces that fought against the Nazis. He fell in love with the policewoman, Betty Dean, who has moved in and out of his books. And over the following years, he vacillated between these stories, fighting humans, allying with the invaders, uh, and befriending a lot of soldiers along the way. Namor is a king first and generally a superhero second, but he's often portrayed as a supervillain as well. Depending on the story being told, he's equally as likely to ally himself with Captain America or the Invisible Woman as he is with Doctor Doom or Norman Osborn. He might save a kitten from a tree in one story and then murder thousands of civilians with a tidal wave in another. So let's talk about this complicated man in two worlds. What are some of your thoughts on Namor so far? just got so much potential you know it's just he has everything or every direction that you could go and i believe it as much as you can believe this fantastical mermaid man exists and, and does all these amazing things but his his duty to his people his confliction in the intersectionality of his life it, it's just so rich and so deep that i i love him i just i, I want to know more so tormented kind of his taste in women top notch like yeah. a plus man i'm here with you like that guy 
He knows how to choose them. He never treats them right ever. I've never seen him treat a woman right ever. Like not even a single time. We'll get into that more later because he's on trial for that more than he is for anything else. Let's be honest. But I don't know. Susan, Betty Dean, Lady Dorma. Emma Marina, Frost. Emma Frost. Yeah. This is like a babe, 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 you know? And also it's a huge bummer that they all get off to like i mean obviously we're never gonna get rid of emma right emma's around but everybody else just like either dies or like just vanishes like that's the cw series <laughs> that you were mentioning the what i think her name's like sandy um she's gone like I, I have no idea what happens to her after that series betty has a um snapshots that's really good i think that that snapshots is probably one of the best stories with him because it's through her eyes so she's basically just like, yeah, this guy was kind of a jerk, but like, I still have, you know, affection for him, sort of. And it's like, well, that explains how we all feel about this man, <laughs> because he is a jerk. Yeah. He makes mistakes all of the time. And you're just kind of like, well, I, I love him. Know. Though. <laughs> He's like, kind of charming sometimes. And at yeah. least he just doesn't put up with anything from people, right? Because it's like, even in like the Illuminati or something, he's telling people off and just like, look, this is ridiculous. Like I'm out of here and like all of this. And that's kind of what we were all thinking during the Illuminati, I think. So I think he's good at telling people off. I think that um, I, I appreciated that um, sort of uh, bio that you did check because it really points to like how much trauma and loss he's had and like, he is, as we've pointed out, he's so complicated and he's had this really tragic history, which we'll, again, we'll dig into. Um, yet at the same time, immediately, you know, Sarah pointed to the fact that he's also like, despite all this tragedy, he's so much fun. Like uh, you've pointed to some of his great lines too, Justin, like the abs and the thing, like um, he's a really fun character because he has that swagger and like all of these tragic things happen to him, you know, including being like, fire shaved and all these bizarre things and yet he comes out of it and he's like how you doing you know like <laughs> you, you can't help but like be at least i am sort of like charmed by that that you know he just keeps coming out with the one-liners and so forth but it's this interesting balance is some of the storylines are super tragic and you get to sort of you know get in depth with you know why he makes these decisions and the and the, you know, the conflict he goes through, but at the same time, there's this element of humor, I think that I really enjoy that sort of um, is, you know, suffused into his uh, being. So he's, he's a lot of fun for me to read. I enjoy him most when he's just the asshole in the room, but I also yeah. really like the, the stories where he has like moral conflicts to sort out. Do I choose my people or the surface? Do I choose this or that? Uh, and he's often just divided, but yeah, I, I mostly like asshole Namor stories more than anything. I think he's just a lot of fun. I, I can't stop thinking about the the meme trend of like he's a ten, but he's a douchebag water prince. You know, like, <laughs> you love him, but he's got flaws, and we all know them. But he kidnapped you. Like <laughs> that keeps happening, where you're just like, yo, you probably like Reed was not good to Susan in the beginning, right? Sure, you sure, could right. have worked that. Like literally, you didn't need to carry her off into the ocean. That was like. Maybe where you went wrong, maybe, maybe just think about that, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's also, uh, this is a total non sequitur. There's a number of stories with Namor over the years where the heroes have to go down to Atlantis and fight bad guys underwater. And I'm always like, how do their powers work down there? They're like shooting energy blasts and talking to each other and swimming around. And I'm like, mm, 
<laughs> defies my logic sensors a little bit, but it's always Hawkeye a great underwater. Like... <laughs> or the human torch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Noel, Derek, any thoughts on this section? I was going to say, I, I tried to think about Namor and, and try to get to some sort of core nugget. And I think I'm seeing the same things that everybody's talking about, just that like, he's got so many different axes that build his character. And so I was like, is he a noble villain with a code? Is he a hero with a brittle sense of self and anger issues? Is he an outsider everywhere he goes? And he's not really anybody's first choice of friend. Um, is he a political leader exhausted by people trying to impose a right wrong axis on him? Or is he a political leader who takes a lot of breaks to the detriment of his people? Um, no matter what his defining characteristic to me seems to be his insecurity at not belonging and how he compensates uh, for that at a level so deeply that he, you know, he doesn't know he's compensating. He's just, he lives the swagger sort of thing. So yeah, I, I don't think I've got like a one thing summary, but like, those axes are how I see him. There are some definitive writers over the years that have taken this character and crafted him in slightly new ways. Uh, Roy Thomas and John Byrne and Roger Stern, uh, Jonathan Hickman, uh, where you really see their love for this character. And we just got an announcement, like, I think the day before we recorded this, that Christopher Cantwell is doing a new Namor series. Yeah. Thrilled about because his his Iron Man has just been brilliant. Uh, I'm really excited to see what they do with him. He, I, I like this this very complex uh, character. And then we're going to be talking a lot about uh, Chip Zdarsky's run uh, with him on Invaders, which is super fascinating as well, as well as Jason Aaron's work with him in the Avengers right now. So this character never goes away for long. He's always kind of in the forefront of appearances or thoughts. Uh, let's talk about his powers just a little bit. Namor is extremely powerful. He's got a complex set of mutant abilities, most prominently his ability to breathe in both water, which uh, is salt water and fresh water and air. He has extreme super strength. He's, he's defeated the Hulk before in combat. Uh, he has the ability to fly due to the wings on his ankles, which you can yank them off and they'll grow back. And it's always really painful, but it's kind of funny when that happens too. <laughs> Namor has uh, enhanced durability and speed, endurance, stamina, and healing skills. He's extremely long-lived. He's been alive over a century. He has uh, pointy ears because fun and big old circular eyebrows and a big giant forehead. Uh, when Namor grows weak, a splash of water uh, can revive his strength at its peak. He at times demonstrates the ability to channel the powers of various sea creatures, like giving off electric bursts like an electric eel or using echolocation like a dolphin. But those are pretty inconsistent throughout his appearances. He can also mentally communicate with most forms of sea life. Uh, on top of that, he's got the resources of the entire Atlantean society at his disposal. That's magic and artillery and armies and scientific breakthroughs and cloning technology, uh, all sorts of things that he's used in, in appearances over the years. He's, he's uh, you know, disguised Atlanteans as air-breathing secret agents and planted them in societies. Uh, he's set off bombs that that put tidal waves over, over cities. He's got a lot of tremendous power. In recent stories for a time, he stole the powers of Hydro-Man, which allowed him to manipulate water as well. Uh, he also frequently uses artifacts, the Trident of Neptune, the Horn of Proteus, which can summon sea monsters, which is one of my favorite Marvel nerdy things ever. That little craggly horn that can blow and a monster shows up. Uh, tell me your thoughts on Namor's superpowers. He can do anything. I also think it's really cool how, you know, because everybody always makes fun of Aquaman, right? To be like, oh, so what? You can talk to fish or something. And it's always, 
kind of driven home like oh you're just like the water guy you're just like the fish guy namor is so powerful and i don't think that anybody ever questions how powerful he is and so i find that to be really interesting because aquaman shows up and is like i don't know fish or something and then namor like rises up out of the water and like a giant tidal wave and is like declaring war on new york city same namor same i have also declared war on new york city so many times but i am just like always fascinated by that because it's like people think that it's intrinsically something like oh water villains or heroes are always kind of weak because they have to be in the water and there's always a water element and i'm just like namor namor is out here like punching nazis through the whole like second world war like you know, this guy has always been such a powerful character. He has like all of the same power set of Aquaman. And yet, I don't know, doesn't seem to have any of the drawbacks, I guess, that like culturally we associate with Aquaman, right? Yeah. Derek, go ahead. I think we've also got a list, uh, his personality as a superpower. Um, but uh, no, I think uh, the very fact that he can go toe to toe with the Hulk puts him in this sort of tier of people in the Marvel universe that, you know, you need them for certain narrative situations. You like, you need somebody who's Silver Surfery or Hulky or Iron Manny or, or Sasquatch level or whatever. And I think um, the fact that he's unaligned with anybody else, like politically, team-wise, gives a huge amount of flexibility to the stories. And we've seen a lot of those stories. So, yeah, that's cool. Any other thoughts on his powers? I, uh, I, like I love watching him fight heroes more than I like watching him fight villains because he is so powerful, like you guys mentioned. And he... Sometimes I feel like they don't expect it always. They should know, but it seems like they're always a little caught off guard that he can beat them. <laughs> but like here's, at, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Here's attitude guy again. And then the fight happens. <laughs> yeah, I think they did a good job with, um, and as we've been talking about, you know, as opposed to Aquaman, he's just as powerful on land as he is in the yeah. water, you know, because I think that's one of the, difficulties with Aquaman is really it's it's you know he's most powerful in the water whereas Namor you know he's he's just as powerful on land um you know he's super powerful um and and so he really is a strong um contender in all of these battles and I think that makes him a lot of fun and I I'm sorry to be that person but I have to say the one power that sort of ugh, I'm I'm iffy about the flight with the little wings on the ankles like <laughs> Wouldn't he just flip over? Like yeah. I don't. I know this is superpowers, and I'm totally quibbling, right? Like, oh, but you can't. He's like, you know, suspension disbelief. But I just like that image of him with the tiny little wings on his feet. I feel like he would just, right, just flip he's, over and like have to fly upside down. Flying upside down across the Sorry, sky. Just, I love it. I can't help but think that when I see the little you know wings on the ankles it's like the thing is like he was what a 1939 character right and i mean like it was literally what one year after superman they had no idea what superheroes were whether like it's just funny to think like the the field and its conventions had not been established and and like some of the some of his contemporaries are so ridiculous and so i'm like okay little wings i'll i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, it is a product of the time. Yeah. yeah, I'll date myself as I say this, but I grew up. Uh, I'm 43. I watched the Super Friends cartoon when I was a little kid, and Aquaman was always my favorite. Like the communing with sea creatures. So when I when I first started reading Namor, I'm like, oh, is that guy? Uh, and then in modern era, for anyone who's watching the boys, they uh, the character the deep, the deep, they, yeah, he's just the comic relief, and he's kind of the Namor style character in the show, and it's hilarious and uncomfortable. And I always think of Namor and like, oh, they should do this with him in the books more because it's. It's quite delightful. Uh, Namor is indelibly associated with his creator in a way that most Marvel characters are not. Bill Everett created him, and when they brought him back in the 60s, Bill Everett continued to work on him. And often in, in Submariner comics, he's still credited as like thanking Bill Everett in a way that you you see most characters attributed to Stan Lee. And we'll have we'll have further conversations about Bill Everett another time, but it's important to note. Namor is famous for his arrogance and his anger. He ranges from heroic to villainous quite frequently, and there have been multiple story reasons in continuity given for his extreme mood changes, such as the leftover mental influence from Paul Destin and the Serpent Crown, or the submerged personality Machen. We'll talk about both of those during the trial today. Uh, even oxygen or water deficiency, given his need to uh, breathe both. Namor has a history of being mind-controlled. Destin mind-controlled him for decades. Xavier's messed with him. Master Khan has messed with him. Uh, he was uh, he was taken over by the Order uh, during his time with the Order by the being Yandroth. He possessed a fifth of the Phoenix Force for a while. Um, he's also been killed and revived a number of times. He was killed in battle and revived by the god Neptune. Uh, he was killed during Battle World, but uh, in the Secret Wars. But Mister Fantastic with godlike powers resurrected him. And in the Squadron Supreme, a few years back, Hyperion beheaded Namor, and then they had to revive him by pulling him out of the time stream just before his death. Namor's also seen the Kingdom of Atlantis destroyed a number of times through war, attacks by supervillains, or internal conflicts. He regularly sees his people just uh, ravaged by pollution and internal conflict. He's been kicked off the throne so many times, it's like he can barely hold on to his power. Despite his arrogance, the rule of his kingdom is always rather precarious, and he generally ends up back on the throne. Atlantis has been rebuilt and destroyed, probably more than the Xavier Mansion, which is saying something. <laughs> it's, uh, it's happened a lot. I want you to consider one quote about the character that I chose out of so many that are available, but I just found it brilliant. This is by Jason Aaron in Avengers Volume 8, Number 42. These are Namor's inner thoughts. He says, when I was a child, barely old enough to go for swims on my own, I murdered a shark, a bull shark, much bigger than me. I dragged it to the surface and hurled it onto the rocks, then watched it flop and smother. My mother found me, demanding to know why, angrily asking if I'd rather live on the surface with my father, where men killed not to feed themselves or their tribe, but for no discernible reason at all. The shark tried to bite me, I lied. If we killed everything under the waves that wanted to bite us, we would soon be swimming alone, my mother chided, but I confidently disagreed. After I've killed a few, everything in the deep will learn to swim clear of Prince Namor. My mother beamed with pride and saluted me as a proud Atlantean. She had me carry the shark's body into the depths alone. It was heavy in my arms, but not as heavy as my heart. I wept as I carried the dead shark below. I wept so many tears, the tides rose higher across the globes, and I watched the shark, excuse me, and as I watched the shark sink to the ocean floor where hungry crabs and barracudas waited, I let my last tear fall with it. The last tear the future king of Atlantis would ever shed. Though the shark was far from the last thing I would kill beneath these waves to ensure nothing even thought about sinking its teeth into me. If I die, the seas die with me. 
I am the only force keeping the earth from becoming a desert, but even a king needs help now and then. I am Namor of Atlantis, Lord of the Seven Seas. So let me hear a little bit of your thoughts about Namor's personality <laughs> or his psychology, if you will. Namor's written the way I wish most villains were written because his motivations are so complicated and his you can understand his reasons for doing things like when he's trying to protect Atlantis and he's pissed at humans like you get it and he might do some like bad things but I always feel like I understand why you're doing mm. this mm. and so I, I wish that complication was built into more villains in that way and he just has he just lives in this like liminal space between like is he good is he bad but you because he's such an important character, it's such a long history and so many stories, you we get to understand him a lot better than other characters who might do bad things. Yeah, his his villainy makes me think of Magneto, makes me think of every villain is the hero of their own story. You know, he is not a villain, even if he makes hard choices that others would see as an affront on them. Uh, because he's doing so for reasons that are personal to him. And, and just this quote about his upbringing and, and just the pressures of being this royalty of Atlantis that speaks so much to the conflicting ideologies in his mind and, and just the external pressures that are coming at him from every direction to be whoever he can be. And he can be anybody he wants because he's super powerful, as we talked about. You know, he's, he's got so much potential to just do and like kind of at his best, he's climate change, right? Like he's this person who's kind of coming at us for all of the bad things that we've done. And so you kind of have this, there's like a vengeance to him. What I think is interesting about the passage that you just read and everything actually that you just said, his susceptibility to mind control, right? Because like what I always hear is, is that like, okay, if you're like indifferent to a cult, then you can't be recruited to the cult. But if you're like either open to one or completely not open to one, then you can be recruited, right? Like the person who's like super against the cult, who's like, I could never be somebody who would join a cult will like be susceptible because they go into that situation so strong-willed as if like they can't be convinced otherwise. And that's what I think of Namor is, is that a lot of his confidence is a front. And so he goes into these situations so certain of himself. And so it makes him susceptible. It makes him like very easy to control in some, some situations. But here in that quote, we're talking about how vulnerable he is. So I think a lot of the things that he does make him be this kind of character who you always see like this kind of weakness behind him because he's trying so hard to be strong all of the time because he doesn't want any cracks in his armor and there's always going to be cracks right so like there's no way to eliminate that part of yourself you're always going to be vulnerable i think that he's somebody who carries his vulnerability pretty much everywhere he goes we see it all of the time interesting thought on that there are a number of characters in other marvel books like luke cage or daredevil or captain america who a big part of their stories recurring is they have such strong wills and such strong sense of self that they are very difficult to influence or mind control. Yeah. But Namor is super easy to fuck with. Yeah. <laughs> People are messing with his brain all the goddamn time. But look at the differences between Luke and Namor, right? Yeah, like Luke is somebody who's confident in himself in a way that he doesn't have to posture. Namor sure. is all posturing, right? Like as much as he it's backed up by a lot, He's all posturing. Even in that story, he lies to his mother, you know, like his mom, 
is like literally reading him for what he just did. And he feels like he needs to lie to her because he, what he did wasn't honorable and like sure. he knows it. And that's something that I think is very different than what we see with Luke. Right. A very fragile ego. Yeah. yeah. Derek, I go love ahead. that. I think one of the interesting things about his personality is just how different he is from all of the other people in the Marvel universe. Like you've got Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, the X-Men, all of whom make conscious choices to be something heroic, right? As if that's like part of the compass. And I don't think heroism is even in his dictionary. I think he's doing this not to be a hero, but he's doing it because he understands duty. He understands honor. He understands responsibility. And that ends up making for really different choices than, you know, Peter Parker or Professor X or Magneto or anybody else would make. And I think, yeah, it, it puts him in his, you know, in, in a place where I'd be like, okay, Galactus is like that. So is the in-betweener and so is, you know, the stranger and a few other people. I feel like the only people he sees us as contemporaries are other people who are royalty. Well, unless you're blonde and have boobs. <laughs> right, right. I think he sees like Magneto, Black Panther, Doctor Doom at his level and everyone else is beneath him. I think just because of his station, which is also interesting to consider. Uh, Noel, I interrupted you. I apologize. Oh, no, I was going off the same thing of the comparison between him and Black Panther is really interesting because they look at the decisions that they make and they view morals and they, they're both kings, they're both royal, they both have people to look out for. But Black Panther's more conflicted about like the morality of decisions and mm -hmm. being a hero where Namor doesn't feel the need to like factor that into his decision making. Cool. He, he will make whatever decision he thinks is best, completely different than Black Panther will. And, uh, and Christopher, well, excuse me, he just goes by Priest now. Priest and Jonathan Hickman have both played up those storylines. The Black Panther, uh, Namor uh, division really brilliantly in a few different titles. Anyone else with thoughts here? Okay, we're going to focus a little bit on Namor's connection to the X-Men primarily. This is an X-Men podcast. We could talk about his relationship with the Human Torch or with Captain America or Mr. Fantastic, but we're going to focus it on the X-Men for just a few minutes. Namor has a long history of being connected with mutants, more than people think. You have to kind of look at it uh, uh, from front to back and find all the spots. Uh, he's first identified as a mutant in X-Men Volume 1, Number 6. He's sought after by both Magneto and Professor X, but he refuses to join either of them, and he just stays away from them, not wanting to put up with their nonsense. In modern stories, though, there's been a lot more connection to the X-Men, with a lot uh, kind of in between. After fighting as a soldier in World War II, as an example, he spent years living on the surface with allies that he met during the war, uh, some people called the Peterson family. We'll talk about them a little bit later. Uh, in time, the telepath Paul Destin, or Destiny, searched for the Serpent Crown, which triggered an earthquake that ended up killing both the Emperor, the Core, and uh, Princess Fen. So Namor's mother and grandfather were killed. Destin then used the crown to wipe Namor's memories, and he spent decades on the surface living as a derelict. Modern continuity, however, in the most recent Invaders series by Chip Zdarsky, we go back and we see a story of Namor during a time when his amnesia went away and he had his memories. And he's living with this Peterson family, helping them raise their son, Roman. Uh, and in time, he is sought out by Professor X before he forms the X-Men. 
They go on some missions to try to save mutants together, and they come across a mutant named Tim Rhodes, also known as Genus, who could change the species of those he touched. And Xavier me immediately saw the opportunity to use Rhodes as a weapon, changing humans into mutants, but a cop killed this character, Genus, with a stray bullet, and Namor began lashing out at the crowd. And Professor X enters his mind, recognizes all of the significant trauma that Namor's carrying because of the combat he saw in the war, and then he created an entity in Namor's mind called Machan, M-A-C-H-A-N, uh, to act as kind of an inner therapist that Namor could confide in, thinking that it might help Namor. Uh, Namor instead later became an amnesiac again, while that identity of Machan grew within his brain, slowly kind of driving him mad over time. This is a weird Professor X story that people don't know exists, I think. It's in this, it, it, this Invaders series with no other connections to the X-Men. Uh, but God, fucking Xavier, this story is nuts. We'll talk about <laughs> it. Uh, this also could explain some of Namor's personality shifts. In Uncanny X-Men, Volume two, or excuse me, annual two, uh, Namor resisted Sebastian Shaw's offer of a membership within the inner circle of the Hellfire Club, though he did have a two-week tryst with Emma Frost that resulted in Shaw sending Sentinels to attack Atlantis. In Fantastic Four number 104, when Magneto took over Namor's throne in Atlantis, Namor worked with the Fantastic Four to defeat him. In Fantastic Four 286, during a time when Namor's with the Avengers, he helps retrieve the Phoenix cocoon that contains Jean Grey off the bottom of Jamaica Bay. He also fought Assassin, who's a deadly warrior created by Apocalypse in Namor Annual Number 2. He battled Wolverine when Wolvie was controlled by the Hill Three, the plant people from Kunlun in Namor Number 21. He had adventures with the mutant Loa in uh, Namor the First Mutant series. He fought a, a sea monster with the teenage Jean Grey in the Jean Grey series. He fought Wolverine during the Civil War. He battled most recently Nature Girl and her friends in X-Men Green. He's even had a clone of him created by Mr. Sinister called N2 during World War II, which was featured in Weapon X uh, Volume 2, number 14. So there's a number of stories featuring Namor. Beyond this, I won't list them all here, but it's more comprehensive than you might think. There has been a time more recently, though, when Namor is very closely associated with the X-Men, and it lasted for years of publication history. After the events of M-Day, Namor was one of only a few hundred mutants who retained their powers, and Emma Frost manipulated Namor into allying himself with the X-Men. At the same time, he was a member of Norman Osborn's Cabal. We'll talk about that later. He ended up on a team called the Dark X-Men for a while. He fought the Dark Avengers and the Bio-Sentinels. He later helped uh, the X-Men bolster the island nation of Utopia, building his city of New Atlantis just beneath him, like really throwing his whole lot in with the mutants. And he participated with them on a series of deadly adventures, fighting Predator X, Bastion, and the Nimrods during the uh, the, the uh, Messiah story. What's that called? Uh, Second Coming, uh, whatever that storyline is called. Uh, uh, he fights Zaris and his vampires and many other threats. He was later put on Cyclops' extinction team of X-Men, facing Mr. Sinister, the Celestials, the Phalanx, uh, the Immortal Man of Tabula Rasa, the Agents of Atlas, Blastar, and Unit. When Osborn weaponized Namor's dead wife, Marina, against him, the X-Men helped Namor kill her. During these missions, Namor regularly flirted with Emma Frost, trying to lure her away from her relationship with Cyclops, encouraging her to cheat. And though we'll talk about this in the trial, he was also part of that infamous Phoenix Five. He interacted with Beast, Emma Frost, and Xavier in various incarnations of the Cabal and the Illuminati. And in X-Men Red, as Justin referenced earlier, Jean Grey asked Namor to use his position in the United Nations to vouch for a nation of mutants which would be recognized around the globe without borders. And he did so. 
In recent months, Namor's had meetings with Magneto, one of the rulers of the new mutant nation of Krakoa, but he has ultimately refused to be involved in their politics. Uh, here's one quote from Namor based on his relationship with the X-Men during these storylines. It's uh, from Uncanny X-Men Volume 2, Number 11, written by Kieran Gillen. He says, I am a king in my own right. While I am a mutant, the, ho the, the humans don't consider me one. Mutants are loathed. I am feared, but respected. This is not my fight. I need not be here, but watch Summers. Understand what is happening. This is a man stating the autonomy of his people. This is a man declaring, uh, excuse me. This is a man rejecting the idea that he, that the fears of a mob should govern their destiny. This is a species of 200 declaring war on the United States of America. I admire Scott Summers. I would have his woman, of course, but that's a compliment in its own way. Ultimately, the reason why I side with mutants is simple. How could I not? There are those who would stand with the man against the few, but Namor will never be amongst them. So uh, let's hear a little bit of your thoughts on Namor as a mutant or as his connection to the, the X-Men and the mutant nation. He's so annoying. You know, like, are you serious? Give me a break. You're a mutant, buddy. Like, let it go, you know? Like, geez. <laughs> He's like, whoa, I'm a mutant, but like, not like those mutants. Okay. And you're just like, give me a break. Like, what is this? And he's like, king well, first I, and a mutant third. <laughs> I super don't mind hooking up with a mutant every now and again. And you're just like, buddy, <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> Can you chill for five seconds? Like, what is this? I appreciate that he has their back often enough. I appreciate that Gene and him have like a really fun dynamic. I think I, I appreciate the way that they have interacted in X-Men Red as it was brought up before. Um, Gene doesn't, Gene is not taking any guff off of this guy, which I appreciate. And I think that, yeah, overall though, you're just kind of like, dude, you're a mutant, get over it. It's okay. Like, it's fine. It'll be better for you if you just like chill with the mutants actually, because they like you more actually, it seems like. Uh, Justin, you're on mute. They want you to join them. Be on our council. Be a, like, one of us. Like I understand. <laughs> right, right, right. I understand. Atlantis, you got uh, the Atlanteans. You got a lot of responsibility, but also, hey, we can send some guys. We can help you. We have some underwater guys that aren't you. You know, we have some people that can do some things for you, with you. Just join us. Why are you helping them? Like, they also need help. You know, it's like there's underwater mutants and like they're on Krakoa. They don't have anybody to guide them. So are they not part of your kingdom? I don't know. I'm like, it, Namor. The, the vastness of his kingdom, Chad mentioned X-Men Green and Namor showed up. He's like, you're in the water, so it's my home. Like, <laughs> what a boss move. Just anytime it's wet, I'm here and I'm in charge. And you're invading I, I, my borders. Right, right. It's just whenever you're not standing, if you're floating or swimming, I'm in charge. He's the ultimate lifeguard, but kind of a jerk about it. It seems it seems apparent that he only wants to be associated with mutants when they when they have to beg him for his help. Like, come to me on your knees. Uh you can need only me, make me feel very important, and then I will help you. But now right. that they have their own nation, he's like, fuck you guys, I don't want to be. Whoa, 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 did you go to T'Challa first? No, I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Storm. <laughs> Rude. Very uh, much a wants-to-be-wanted person. Yes, He yes. likes that more than anything else. I appreciate the way he mixes it up, you know, and he and with the X-Men and is sort of that you know, he pushes back on the ideals. And I like it when he's in a storyline and they kind of mix it up. But, you know, to play devil's advocate, 
sometimes I think he'd be better off just hanging in Atlantis because like, you know, Xavier, like the X people have not always been good to him. Like there's a lot, and you mentioned this before, yeah. so much mind messing. It's just like, after that Xavier thing, I would be like, I am out, you know, like he's, he's had some significant trauma when interacting with um, the X men. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I think uh, I, I would I would respect his decision to kind of step back and disengage um, after all of that trauma. They've really messed with him. The world leader piece is interesting, too, because this guy is more Putin than he is Biden. You know, like he he's got this massive empire uh, and it's so fragile and they're ready to kick him off the throne at any opportunity. It's an interesting thing to consider. Other thoughts on Namor as a mutant. Do you like him with the X-Men? I liked him when when Gillen told stories. He was never the feature character. He was kind of the guy in the background who was just there. Uh, and I thought that was kind of the perfect place for him in those titles. Chuck is burning bridges still, right? <laughs> Charles. I, I like him with the mutants just because it adds another layer to his complexity and it makes so much sense and it, it feels like the responsibility that he doesn't want to embrace unless it benefits him and his ego and i just it underlines everything about him that we've talked about so far and also you love him for it but uh, and are aware of your hate for him i i think it's true that you know, the X-Men you love are the ones you were first exposed to. And so, I mean, my first experience with the X-Men was around the Dark Phoenix saga time and just after that. And so I've never seen Namor as a great fit for the X-Men, but that's because I come with that sort of baggage. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if I step back, he's really big. He takes up so much oxygen and part of the X-Men is the way they interact, right? I prefer Wolverine with the X-Men than on his own solo series. And it goes that way with most of the characters because I think their real strength is they're a community that is is basically like forming a stronger community because they're being ringed on the outside by enemies. And so Namor doesn't have the same kind of vulnerabilities to make him part of that community. And at the same time, he's so big as a personality that he also disrupts the feel of community in that other sense too. I haven't read all of the stuff you know, where he's been in the X-Men. So I could be missing something, but just if you're asking for impressions, that's where my head goes. Fascinating. I was just barely considering. So this guy is running a massive kingdom and the invitation to sit on the quiet council of Krakoa. Imagine the king of a country saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to also be part of a ruling body of this other country. There is no way Atlantis would stay loyal to him if uh, if he did that, which is an interesting thing. I don't think they've spelled that out in the books. It's the Duke of Normandy, right? Yeah, Taking sure. over as King of England. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about his responsibilities in comparison to Storm in serving on the Quiet Council in Krakoa and being Regent of Seoul and this this governing body of Arako and the number of, but it's all mutant centric, unless you go to that further realization that soul is everything. Yeah. You're all under, you have the water, but we have the solar system and, and what would a meeting between them be like, especially now at this point, we've, we've seen one recently between storm and doom who often is in my mind compared to Namor for his, 
connection to the Fantastic Four and also his dominion over a kingdom, how is that power played out larger? I love these trials because I, I get these little nuggets of insight into these characters after I've researched them so uh, indelibly. And then I'm like, huh, okay. And then it makes me think for hours afterwards. It makes me happy. Uh, any other thoughts on Namor as a mutant before we jump into our trial section? Just one more thing. As everyone was talking, I was thinking about, you know, Namor and his relationships in general. And this there's this very deep part of himself that he cuts off from everyone. He has a, an aversion or allergy to vulnerability. And one, mutants are, are a community and he would have to have some vulnerability and have that care. And like, I, I wonder if there's just a fear there to like open that up a little bit more. You know, he's born into Atlantis, but the mutants he sees as like a choice. And what are the implications of that choice if he like chose to go that route? Because I think he sees love as like possessing or controlling but the X-Men don't work that way. And it's not going to go very well for him if he tried to do that with the <laughs> X-Men. Um, so I think he he would have to be too vulnerable to really like align himself with them fully. Interesting, interesting. Uh, we also, we always have to note, this is a character that's been handled by dozens of writers. And one of my favorite things here is we're taking all of the data and trying to collate it into one, you know, personality profile, which is fascinating to do in my brain. Now, uh, when it came to the Angel trial, uh, a big part of the discussion, well, frankly, and the Scarlet Witch trial, a big part of the discussion was how culpable, how in control are these characters during these parts of their history that we're going to be reviewing. And I think that's going to be a big part of our conversation with Namor. So as you're doing your prosecutions and defenses, that's one thing I'm going to be listening for is how culpable is he? How, how in control was he during this time? Uh, or was it the Phoenix? Or was it Xavier? Or was it, you know, dot, dot, dot? Um, I want to note really quickly, I went back, and this is the first time I'd ever done this. I went back before this trial and reread all of Namor's 30s appearances, like his 30s, 40s stuff. And it was problematic and uncomfortable. And there's a lot of super racist content in those issues, particularly toward Japanese people. Uh, but the character of Namor is relatively consistent. It's the same guy, kind of right from the beginning, this guy that's torn between worlds. And uh, it's it's really interesting to see someone who's that consistent over time, just in the way Captain America is that consistent over time. It's uh, it's fascinating to see these characters reinterpreted over the years. Uh, okay, so let's jump into the trial portion. Now, we're uh, just noting for all of our listeners, this is not a comprehensive review of his history. Namor has done a lot of shitty stuff and a lot of heroic stuff. And I have, uh, I've highlighted kind of five sections of his history, one from the very beginning and then four from modern continuity. These are complex storylines, some of them. And I've typed uh, concise summaries, but it's worth going back and reading these stories to form your own opinions. And again, there's always going to be more. The Order is a series I referenced briefly previously where uh, Kurt Busiek, spinning out of the Defenders, Namor and the Defenders try to conquer the planet, basically, when they're under the spell of Yandroth. That's not a story I included here. And there's a lot of those types of stories that we could include, but just for comprehensiveness sake uh, and time's sake, we don't have the ability to do all of that, which is a lesson I learned in the Juggernaut trial. When you try to put everything in, it's too much. And we record for four hours, which is never, <laughs> which is never uh, desirable. So for the following section, we are going to put Namor on trial for some of his most egregious crimes uh, in isolated sections of history. I have read his whole chronology or at least skimmed major sections of it, but we're not going to cover every appearance here. As we get to the end of each section, each of us here, including myself, will be voting on a scale from one to five 
on how culpable Namor is in each area, and we'll take a final score at the end. So for our jury members, when you get to the voting portion, you'll be voting one, justifiable action, two, morally concerning, three, definitely inappropriate, four, over the line into criminal behavior, five, pure evil. And we'll get there as we go. I'll remind you of that scale one more time before the first vote. With this, let's get into trial point one. The prosecution here will be Susan, who's jumping in for the first time on a trial at Gray Malkin, and the defense will be Noel. And uh, Susan, you have your work cut out for you. Noel is savage. <laughs> All right, so in this section, in Namor's very first appearance, he killed some undersea divers and returned them to his mother, Fen, who reminded him that humans were his enemy and had to be killed in order for Atlanteans to survive. Namor later destroyed a lighthouse. This was in Marvel Comics number one. After Namor was attacked by humans, he declared war on the surface world, planning to conquer New York City first. After attacking several humans, he declared the Statue of Liberty as his. After setting off bombs, crashing a plane, and ripping the spire off of the Empire State Building, he freed some zoo animals so that, he could, so that they would attack humans. But then he fought the animals in order to save the humans. Namor battled the Human Torch in an infamous battle that was recounted famously in the Marvels series uh, before giving up his mission of conquest. That story is in Marvel Comics Volume 1, numbers 7 through 10. Decades later, after getting his memories back, Namor believed Atlantis to be destroyed, and he attacked New York City using the Proteus Horn to awaken the monster Giganto with the intent to destroy humans. That was in Fantastic Four, number 4. Then he was reunited with Atlantis for the first time in decades and immediately made a show of force, uniting his armies and the creatures of the deep in a coordinated attack on the surface world. After containing the Fantastic Four, he made a public announcement that New York City was now under his control and he occupied the city with his army. But the soldiers were soon repelled and Namor had an epic battle with the Fantastic Four. He chose to give up his mission when the invisible girl was wounded and he rushed to help save her. Atlantis abandoned him as a result and he lost his uh, control. That was in Fantastic Four, Volume One, Annual Number One. Uh, so let's turn it over to Susan for the prosecution. Thank you. I feel, I feel uh, this was the part I was nervous about having never participated in a trial before. And I was super nervous because I, I feel this need to apologize to my fellow panelists, to anyone involved in the legal profession, anyone who's had <laughs> jury duty, like anyone ever um, in any way affiliated with the legal profession, because like all of my knowledge of legal issues comes from Night Court and Allie McBeal. So just to kind of <laughs> set the stage here, I feel this need to have a disclaimer, like, you know, where, where I'm coming from. But I went through and I read, I did my research and did the due diligence. And I, I came up with, you know, some examples from drawing on this sequence of events, um, you know, several examples of Namor behaving in ways which are, you know, really egregious and violent and out of control. So in, in this Marvel Comics number one, he's relying on, you know, highly suspicious testimony from his mother. And just as you pointed out, the signs, Earth dwellers are the enemy and I need to destroy them. He doesn't really do any research or investigate the situation. He just, he just starts wrecking things up. He's pulling pilots out of planes. He's smashing everything. Admittedly, he's looking pretty wicked at the time. He's looking really cool, but do not let it fool you because he has obviously rage issues, which continue in the 
Marvel Comics 7 through 9. He's goaded into, as you pointed out, taking over New York. He tosses these innocent tourists out of the Statue of Liberty. Um, he's causing havoc. He's irrational and violent. Again, he's still rocking the eyebrow, but that should make you even more suspicious because he is <laughs> crashing boats. He slaps the mayor, crashes the L train. He's again smashing up the Empire State Building, pauses to flirt with Betty, right? She is entranced by the eyebrows. He keeps going on. He sets off a bomb. He heads to the zoo. And for a minute, we think, oh, well, he's letting the animals out. That's like some redeeming behavior. But then, and he tells them, go gorge yourself. But then he changes his mind and he gets, and he like starts smacking, he hits an elephant. That is not cool. You, you do not slap the elephant. You don't set it free and then start slapping it. And then it devolves into this weird slap fight with a human torch. It's, it's, he's just out of control. Then we have example three of this out of control violent behavior. He reawakens from amnesia and he discovers Atlantis, you know, he thinks it's been destroyed. You know, this happens a lot, but instead of like looking for his people, oh, I should help my people. He's just like, oh no, no, I'm gonna go after the humans. Like, what about that? You know, what, where's, why not find your people and help them? But instead he like gets out his little um, Proteus horn and takes this giant Ganto sea monster to rampage through New York. It's like, you know, this evil Pied Piper. Um, and he, again, it's like he's behaving again, this pattern of behavior. He's reacting violently and rashly without regard to civilian casualties or elephants and this thoughtless and ill-informed <laughs> attack on the land dwellers. He even admits it's a selfish grudge. Those are his words. But he continues on with this plan to, quote, enslave all its people and become emperor. Uh, and at this point, like, he, he hasn't been manipulated by Professor X or anything like that. Like, this is all, this is him. He's making choices here. And he just continues on this pattern of attacking innocent bystanders, first responders, not thinking about, well, who's actually responsible? Where are my people? He's just full of rage. He attempts to kidnap Sue Storm. That's beyond reprehensible. But time and time again in this series, we see him acting, just reacting immediately with violence and rage rather than with logic and reason. So that's that's sort of my take on this initial run. Beautiful. Uh, let's turn it over to Noelle. Okay. So we have to look at the reasons behind Namor's violence in these situations, which Susan did a great job of laying out. So how can he do all of these things and still be on the right side? We have to look at Atlantis and its history and their relationships with humanity. Atlantis has been like destroyed by this time by bombs that humans have set off that collapsed rocks and crushed Atlantis and killed civilians. Um, and so they, Atlantis and Atlanteans have a history of seeing humans as the enemies. And I would say that's a pretty good reason. Like if someone dropped rocks on my hometown, they would be my enemies. Um, and then uh, he's also experienced divers, human divers encroaching on Atlantean territory. Whether or not they are aware of the borders and whatever, like they're invaders in Atlantis. So, I think we have to look at Nemor in these early situations as a, a member of the ruling family protecting his people against an encroaching, an encroaching enemy. So this is a fight for survival. And Namor doesn't owe humans anything just because his dad was a human. 
Um, but as a prince and later as a king, he does owe his people protection. And he sees the only way to do that is to fight humanity. Um, and we also have to remember that he lives in that space where he is half human and half Atlantean. So he has to prove himself to his fellow Atlanteans that he is on their side. He's not going to turn against them for the humans. So when the king orders Namor to attack humans in New York, he not only believes them to be enemies, but he has to show his countrymen that he's not going to betray them to the surface dwellers. He's not going to go easy on humans because his dad was human. Um, then Namor thinks that humans intentionally bombed Atlantis and destroyed it. So he's reacting in vengeance because he sees it as an act of war. And that's literally his name, the Avenging Son. Like that's the, the birthright that his mom gave him or the, not the birthright, the like driving focus of his life that she gave him when she named him that. Um, so as far as he knows, they've been attacked and he has again a responsibility to protect and avenge his people. And it, we do have to mention a couple instances where he's not a totally callous murderer. He does slap the elephant, which I can't defend. Um, but he rescued a baby and he's concerned about the invisible woman's safety. He might have been trying to kidnap her, but he didn't want her to get hurt. So I think that counts for something. So in all, I think we have to look at the extenuating circumstances and why he would act so violently against humanity. Fantastic, both of you. I love uh, I love these educated nerds getting together for these wonderful <laughs> nerdy discussions. It makes me so happy. Uh, okay, so uh, let's turn it over to our jury. What clarifying points and or comments do you have on this section that you need to make your decision for voting today? I'm thinking Namor's one of two things. And let's focus on the Fantastic Four because that's where some of these stories are. How often do the Fantastic Four go into other realms and just beat the shit out of people, uh, which is all the time. So it, it, he's either them or he's the Mole Man who's always attacking the surface world. Do we see him more as one than the other? Uh, is he the king of a realm fighting back or is he the guy going into another world and wreaking chaos? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I almost side with the Mole Man more than the Fantastic Four now that I'm thinking about it. I, I feel like it is Mole Man because there are a couple of instances where, hey, there's a diver in your spot and I get it, you're mad and so you kill them. And that ties into his raising, his upbringing. You make an example of them so the humans don't come into your area again. But to continue to go and to not only try to say, hey, no, I'm the ruler of this spot, almost to press on into the surface world and to take over the surface world feels like he's overstepping his bounds. You're either defending your nation or you're invading into another area. And I feel like he's a little more of the latter. When you're throwing the tourists around, that seems to me to, to underscore your point, Justin. Like, it's not just, I mean, maybe the pilot in a military plane you know, you see this sort of militaristic aspect, but like the tourists and the zoo animals, that's like you're you're in the invader territory there, I think. Right. There's some, there could be some cultural explanation here too, though, right? Like Atlanteans, it's a show of force. Uh, sure. when, when a creature gets nearby, you punch it away. We have that quote about the bull shark, right? 
Uh, does he know what an elephant is at that point? Which is which is interesting to consider. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. So so question for the two councils. Um, what happened to the elephant? <laughs> it's fine. Like we don't really know. I mean, I assume that I'm assume it's fine also, but like it, it was a very interesting sequence because it's like he sets the animals at the zoo free, and I was like, right on. And then and then like and he says, Go gorge yourselves on the people, on the humans. And then they start getting rowdy, and then he starts like fighting with them. It was very, it was honestly very confusing. I believe the animals are all okay. Okay, I think, but it wasn't yeah. followed up on. It was and a strange in terms interlude. of common law. We have to look at similar cases, and I believe that Cyclops once optic blast an elephant as well. Um, so mm. I just I, like I'm just trying to put this in comparison. The other thing is, in the 1940s, was it illegal to slap an elephant? <laughs> Doubt it. Doubt it. <laughs> One of my favorite things about these trials is we were like, yeah, yeah, he killed some divers, but what happened to the elephant he punched? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I also think it's it's a product of the times, right? Like back in the 30s through 60s, beating up animals in comics was completely okay. It happens all the time. Super not okay now. Uh, and do you guys see the memes going around that like defend poison ivy? Like in the 90s, we're like, she's a bad guy because she wants to kill billionaires. But now we're like, now we kind of get it. I uh, <laughs> I kind of get Namor's rage after all the pollution and like the 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 land masses of plastic. Like I kind of understand it a little bit. Yeah, right, go ahead. champion. <laughs> so in the movie Zorro, uh, the, the 1940 movie Zorro, apparently some of the stunts they did actually killed the horses they were riding because they were doing stuff like riding off of bridges you know, falling many meters down to water. And like, you know, again, for the time, maybe hitting an elephant wasn't so bad. Uh, so let's go ahead and vote in this section. Uh, so again, I will I will review the voting scale. One is justifiable action, two morally concerning, three definitely inappropriate, four over the line into criminal behavior, five pure evil. Uh, Justin, will you go first? I'm in between a three and a four. Uh, I feel like it, it definitely overstepped his bounds and his criminal behavior in terms of attacking and murdering people. So I just, I'm going to go four because I just talked myself into it. Uh, Derek. I, I've been against murder for some months now, so I'm going to go for four <laughs> as well. Uh, Sarah. I'm on a three, but it's not even really the murder. It's the kidnapping, I think. Um, the part where he kidnaps Sue. Come on, what are you doing? Uh, I'm going to surprise you all and say a one in this section. I feel like the cultural unfamiliarity and the coming out of amnesia while trying to reclaim his throne. I think there's. Uh, he's trying to find his spot here. Uh, wait, wait, what murders illegal here? I I had no idea. I'm no, but I don't think. But I don't think there's a culture. single. I don't think there's a single American president who has not authorized murders at the same sure. time. And this is like sure. the leader of a nation. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. But in this section, it's a one for me. Uh, Susan, <laughs> how about for Oh, oh yeah, ahead. I was just going to say, it reminds me of that episode of Seinfeld where George is just like, well, if I would have known that that was frowned upon. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, I didn't Susan, know it was a bad. Susan, what's your vote here? I'm doing four. Four. And uh, Noel? One. I think he's justified. <laughs> Uh, so that gives us a 17 out of 30 in this section. We will now go into, and Susan, great job. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> we will now go into trial point two, which is called the Illuminati, Illuminati and the Cabal. This will be Sarah on prosecution and Justin on defense. 
Uh, Namor, Namor chose to join an alliance in more modern continuity of superhumans who responded to superhuman threats from behind the scenes in an effort to save the planet, quote unquote. These were not elected officials. We've talked about this in the Xavier trial and the Beast trials as well. The group called itself the Illuminati. It included Black Bolt, Black Panther, Captain America, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and Professor X. Later, when the group decided to send the Hulk into space, Namor violently stood against them, correctly predicting that they would come to regret it because the Hulk later caused World War II uh, and Namor was left out of his revenge plans. That was in New Avengers Illuminati number one. The Illuminati went to the planet of the Skrulls to warn them to return, to never return to Earth, but they ended up getting captured, uh, resulting in the Skrulls obtaining data that would later lead to the Skrull secret invasion. So uh, negative consequences. Later, the group obtained the Infinity Gems, and each cap- uh, member kept one and put it in a protected place. That was in New Avengers Illuminati Volume 2, Numbers 1 and 2. Uh, note that Namor largely remained uninvolved with the Illuminati during the events of the Civil War, World War Hulk, and Secret Invasion events. After Secret Invasion, Norman Osborn took over the government and formed a new group of behind-the-scenes power players called the Cabal, like the dark version of the Illuminati, which included Namor, uh, Emma Frost, Doctor Doom, Loki, and the Hood. Namor and Doctor Doom agreed that if the rest fell apart, the two of them would rule the Earth together. He'd take the seas, Doom would take the land. Namor made a secret deal with Emma Frost, with Namor promising to pledge himself to the cause of mutants. This was in Secret Invasion Dark Reign number one. Uh, Lastly, uh, cajoled by Norman Osborn, Namor was involved in the formation of a team of Dark X-Men, which was loyal to Osborn. But Namor and Osborn had a falling out when Namor refused to kill a group of rogue Atlanteans who attacked the surface. In response, Osborn first unleashed the Sentry and Venom on Atlantis, uh, killing many, and then released the monstrous form of Namor's dead wife, Marina, in order to kill civilians. Namor had to rely on the X-Men to help end the threat, killing his already dead wife. A second time. And I include those pieces just to show some of the consequences for, for the actions that were in the comics. Uh, those stories were in Dark X-Men, the beginning, number one, Dark Avengers, number six, and Uncanny X-Men, annual number two. Uh, all right, we will turn it over to Sarah for the prosecution. The entire Illuminati is on trial, frankly, because what is the Illuminati? How dare you? These five uber powerful men who just argue with each other, they go to the Skrull planet and pick a fight with the Skrulls. And then they're surprised that the Skrulls were like, oh, yeah, we totally like stole your technology while you were here. Like, you fools. Like, just even the the everything about the Illuminati to Namor's benefit. He is often against the Illuminati. He is constantly telling them that what they're doing is wrong. And I think that that is to his benefit. However, the Illuminati existing at all is a bad idea. And the fact that he's a part of it is a bad idea. And then whenever he's like, you know what? I think that the Illuminati is a really bad idea. What does he do? He goes and joins the cabal. Like that's even worse. What are you doing? Now you're working with the green gob. Like, what are you doing? Vibe check. This guy is like always in need of a vibe check. So he's a complete sketchball whenever he's like dealing with any women at all ever. And that comes up with all of this stuff with Emma, right? Because you see like him and Emma and you're like, this is good because this is like a power couple kind of dynamic, right? 
And I think that there's a lot of things about it that work, but he also says a lot of sketchy things to her that I just don't think are like, they're just not good things to say. Like whenever he like, is just like, we don't have blondes where I come from. What are you saying? Or like whenever he's like, oh, like if you just give it away, it's not fun. It's just like, dude, what are you saying? Like, this is really upsetting, you know? So I'm going to say vibe check, vibe check, vibe check. That's like basically what he does wrong here because you, it's like, at least he's against the Illuminati, but like, you know, what good does it do? Why does the Illuminati exist? Like even just being a part of it is bad for you. Like you should not be in the Illuminati. So I guess that's basically my entire persecution of this guy right now is that he is just kind of a sketchball and he's hanging out with these really kind of just sketchy people. I do like that he's always hanging out with Doom, though, because that's just fun. I wish that there was like a whole comic that was just Namor and Doom talking. That would just be fun for me. But that comic is not real and not on trial right now. So that's what I think. Fantastic. And then let's turn it over to Justin for the defense. Esteemed members of the jury, I want to talk to you about intention and reputation. Now, there was a lot of power forming behind the scenes. This Illuminati was going to happen, whether or not Namor joined, helmed by some of the greatest minds and heroes of our universe, a council of protectors for Earth. Were they misguided? Absolutely. But was Namor trying to guide them in the right way? Yes. My client sought to join that council for the protection of his people and planet. He used his position and power to try and save Earth from massive threats. Throughout all of this, he stood up against the council when he saw them going a wrong way, especially for the tormented soul that is the Hulk. His compassion for Hulk was able to break through the Green Giant's blinding rage. While working with Norman Osborn, if you could call it that, he sought to usurp control from medieval force it was happening whether or not he was going to be a part of it, and he went in with an ulterior motive, recognizing the potential damage that could be done if Osborne was left unchecked with power. Within Osborne's organization, he created alliances that were intent to save the various populations of Earth. He stood up to Osborne and later suffered a great loss because of his heroism. My client is continuously acting for the betterment of Earth's people, in the face of insurmountable danger and should be congratulated as the hero that he is. Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm taking note of the Illuminati as a group of world leaders getting together to affect change without authorization. At all. <laughs> right, which is interesting. But then you so you have like Xavier for the mutants and Namor for the Atlanteans and Blackbolt for the Inhumans. And what the fuck is Iron Man doing there? <laughs> Who invited him? And he's like the one with all of the worst ideas except for Reed, you know? But Reed's always going to be the one who does the, the most harm. And then the, <laughs> and then the Cabal is, is just a group of people who like Osborne thinks he can control or benefit from. But Namor willingly participates in both. It's an interesting thing because I think he sees different parts of himself in each and, of these groups. And sees where this group could go unchecked and needs to have a voice in this to guide them to the right way. Fascinating. Uh, what clarifying points and or comments do we have from the rest of our jury? Questions or concerns in this space? Anything you need to clarify? 
in the the sort of Illuminati period, were any elephants uh, hit? <laughs> None. None. The elephants were fine. It was a great time for elephants. Okay, cool. All right, I don't have any more questions. I would almost say the most consequential uh, action here is the scroll invasion, which he didn't even plan on, right? Like, they just did a thing and then it resulted in this. Uh, but that was like planetary conquest for heaven's sake that was a big deal they like went and poked the scrolls with a stick and were like shocked that the scrolls retaliated so well, and mean, then and then the scrolls got like the genetic material they needed to make their crazy like invading agents and to block themselves from the humans which is what allowed them to do the invasion right like yeah. that was uh that was intense uh fun stories these are great uh any any thoughts or are we ready to vote uh let's go with susan first this time I have to say I was very swayed by my soft spot of um, the like defending the Hulk, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was like, oh, Hulk. So that was very persuasive to me. So um, I forgot the scale, but I think like a two, like it, it, I'm giving you a two because of his defense of the, the Hulk. Your two is uh, morally concerning. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with that. Okay, uh, Derek. Was Dr. Strange on the Illuminati? Mm-hmm. Okay, so interesting that Namor defended the Hulk and Strange did not. Uh, I'm going to <laughs> then vote for a two. And uh, Noel, I'm going to go with a three. That's decision making to join that group. This one, uh, I think Namor is in full control and he's in full asshole mode. So I'm going to spread you all again and say a five this time. I think. Uh, I think he was stepping in places he did not belong. Uh, Sarah. I got to go with at least a four because I straight up just don't like how this guy talks to women. Honestly, <laughs> like I just hate it. Every time he talks to Emma, I'm like cringing my whole face off. Like I don't like it. And Emma is really cool in this kind of, but yeah, their dynamic is really interesting. And um, yeah, I don't know. I do like his dynamics. I like that he's kind of like playing the field of like trying to like make all of these different alliances and stuff. That sounds like a Namor thing to do. But yeah, I got to go with a four on this one. And Justin. You know, if we were putting the Illuminati on trial, it would be a two or a It'd three. It'd be like a five. <laughs> sure. You know, inappropriate, concerning, overstepping their bounds. But that was going to happen. The scroll invasion. <laughs> Sure. The scrolls are coming for you regardless of whether you visit them first or not. That's just what scrolls do. If they were the people that were on trial, then yes, evil. But those folks are getting together regardless of what Namor does or doesn't do. So justifiably, he intervenes and sets them on a better course. So I'm going one here. And normally I, I hold my clients to a, a tough regard. <laughs> which gives us a uh oh i gotta add again uh, 17 out of 30 so same score as the last time uh with that we'll go to trial point three which is called phoenix five this will be noel on prosecution and derek on defense while namor was involved with the x-men they entered into an intense conflict with the avengers over the phoenix force which is a cosmic bird entity that needs a host and grants them cosmic power but also kind of consumes them uh, most closely associated with Jean Grey historically, of course. The cosmic entity was divided into five parts by a machine, which then possessed five of the X-Men, making them feel godlike and granting them vast power. These mutants, 
including Namor, Colossus, Cyclops, Magic, and Emma Frost, called themselves the Phoenix Five, and they immediately set out to remake the world to be a better place, even if it meant taking away the will of others and breaking laws in the process. They built a global utopian city, began providing food and water for the world, and outlawed war by directly intervening with and controlling governments. When the Avengers stood against them, the Phoenix Five battled them as they sought to find the mutant messiah, Hope, and Namor began to question Cyclops' leadership. Manipulated by Emma, Namor went after Hope in Wakanda and savagely unleashed a tidal wave that resulted in the deaths of thousands of innocent civilians, kind of breaking Wakanda's borders for the first time in its history. The Avengers turned on Namor and defeated him, and his portion of the Phoenix Force spread to the other members of the Phoenix Five. This was told most in Avengers vs. X-Men 5 through 8. A few years later, Namor wanted the power of the Phoenix again, and he battled several superheroes in order to gain it, savagely uh, fighting and nearly killing the, the, uh, the, the character Echo to get it. She ended up becoming the Phoenix's host instead of Namor, and then he joined the Avengers as a result of this storyline. And that was primarily told in Avengers Volume 8, number 42. Let's turn it over to Noelle for the prosecution. Okay. I hate to sound like I'm going easy on Namor, but the problem of prosecuting someone possessed by the Phoenix Force is, are they actually responsible for their actions? Or is the Phoenix driving them to do things that they maybe wouldn't have done? I do see Namor doing most of these things on his own. Um, while he is one of the Phoenix Five, he goes off on his own and attacks Wakanda and drowns a city of civilians. So uh, lots of death. And I think we can reasonably hold him responsible for the hatred and anti-surface dweller prejudice that he has and he's never dealt with up until this point in his life. Like he's not had a lot of interaction. Like he's had time since the beginning to learn and to deal with that and he's chosen not to. And that anger and his own arrogance does seem to fuel some of what the Phoenix Force gives him the opportunity to do in Wakanda. And when you're a superpowered being in general, your issues become everyone else's problem. And Namor has a lot of issues that he has chosen not to deal with. However, saying all of that, what I think we can completely hold against Namor is later choosing to try and become the new Phoenix host again. He wanted it bad. And he knows firsthand exactly how dangerous and how controlling it is. He has literally already experienced it. Um, and I would just like to point out if Namor becomes the host, a lot of elephants are probably getting, <laughs> probably all gonna be drowned to be perfectly honest. Um, and as he joins the fight to become the next host, he beats Echo so viciously that other heroes who are also engaging in these fights are shocked. Like, it's like so much that they're even like, what the hell? Um, so it's an extreme act of violence that he chooses in pursuit of getting the Phoenix's power. And if that doesn't show just how dangerous he would be as the Phoenix host, then I don't know what does. Um, so Namor in this situation is clearly so obsessed with power and so arrogant to think that he can control this cosmic primordial entity that it's reckless and dangerous, really fucking stupid, um, especially for someone who has experienced the Phoenix firsthand before. And Derek. So <clears throat> I would like to point out some extenuating circumstances. 
Firstly, the outfit. Um, it's like the son of Satan and Aquaman had a kid, dressed him in the dark in their low cut leather jeans, and they couldn't find a shirt. Can anyone be responsible for any of their actions in that outfit? In any of his outfits. The other thing I'd like to make as a point of order to the prosecution is that any elephants potentially harmed by him having the Phoenix Force might be squirrels. Um, on the rescue attempt in Wakanda, let's be clear on who committed the crime and who was trying to punish the crime. The Avengers did this. They kidnapped Homo Superior at their informed peril. There was no doubt in their minds what the consequences of this would be. The nation of Atlantis had no grievances against Wakanda until Wakanda foolishly chose to participate in extraordinary rendition in violation of international law. I'm not going to insult the court's intelligence, nor that of Wakanda's ruler as head of state, King Chichala, knew very well that keeping mutants captive in Wakanda was a declaration of war. My client, as the avenging son of Atlantis and as a member of the Homo Superior, heard T'Challa's declaration clearly, and he answered it decisively to protect humankind in a language that states use to speak to one another. Uh, in the battle uh, against Echo, I think the prosecution is quite right to point out that the real crime is him trying to find the Phoenix Force, which, as a head of state, he should be doing anyway. In the battle with Echo, where is that crime? The Phoenix Force kidnapped everyone and held them captive in the White Hot Room to determine who would be inhabited by the Phoenix Force. Everybody fought. Are you holding up Captain America on similar charges for fighting in the Secret Wars when kidnapped by the Beyonder? Uh, if so, my client is happy to be joined by his old friend Steve Rogers as codependent. My client did not choose to be there, but once he was, did Echo expect the Prince of Atlantis not to fight? Was anyone other than my client truly worthy of the Phoenix Force? Imperious Rex. Fantastic. I think my first question is... Mic drop. Did the did Jean Grey kill the Dabari or did the Phoenix Force kill the Dabari? Did Cyclops kill Professor X or did the Phoenix Force kill Professor X? So then the same question, did Namor kill these Wakandans or did the Phoenix Force kill these Wakandans? Jean was at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. <laughs> that that's a that's a different uh i uh i feel like the phoenix was kind of in control or at least unleashing the darkest parts of him because all of the x-men or all of the phoenix five were acting in similar ways right like colossus and cyclops would not normally act this way and they were uh that's the crux of it for me i think the the yeah, second my, part my and, client is mostly angelic <laughs> <laughs> the second part and the interesting thing and we're, we're going to bring this up in a minute uh in when chip sadarsky wrote the invader series which we'll get to in a minute it almost seemed to be trying to explain namor's very erratic behavior during jason aaron's avengers run and uh, you almost wonder if this like Machen personality is influencing Namor during this time, during the Defenders of the Deep section we'll get to. But Machen has been removed from his brain by this time. So when he chooses to go after Echo, I think it's like a desperation to save the planet. I think he feels like he's the only one that can do it. And he's the only one that can wield this weapon in order to make it happen, which shows me he looks upon his time in the Phoenix Five as entirely justifiable uh in in an effort to you know it's worth killing thousands thousands to save the planet you know kind of mentality which is an interesting thing because again he's got that king 
King complex. I don't know, sorting out my thoughts as we go. Uh, what clarifying uh, uh, questions and or comments do we have from the jury here? Chewing on Phoenix, this. Is the Phoenix on trial and is the Phoenix fully in control of the host's action? And especially when the Phoenix is there, what, what agency does the host still retain and what influence does that Phoenix have over them right just questions just ponderings for namor and his culpability uh and i definitely want to see some scroll elephants now <laughs> <laughs> uh are we ready to vote here does anyone else have any questions or comments uh let's jump in sarah you first four <laughs> i think that we just keep seeing him be really messed up to women honestly like that's maybe not what he's on trial for but you know i just don't think he's really fighting it too hard whenever it's time to beat up echo right like i just think that we see this again and again with this guy so i'm gonna go with four you are allowed to be biased on this jury and i support your bias <laughs> yeah it's, it's like a, gonna be a four pretty solidly i think <laughs> uh derek uh, I am the defense lawyer, but Sarah has brought me from a one to a two. Oh, I meant to put you last. I apologize. I just read the name. Uh, Noel. I do not blame him for the first part when he's one of the Phoenix Five, but I 100% blame him for the second part. So I'm going to go with a four. It's a four for me. Uh, Justin? In between a three and a four, you know, you can't understate the influence of the Phoenix force and the ramifications long term, but that is not trying to make an excuse for the behavior that he enacted and the fact that he did not try to resist in any way. Uh, I, I would say he's culpable for. And Susan. I think my thinking is very much in line with Noel's and that it almost feels like two separate incidents like the in the in the Phoenix when he's possessed by the Phoenix I I am more uh forgiving but once he doesn't have the Phoenix power and just pummels Echo that is uh, yeah morally reprehensible but I'm going to split the difference with a you know say four That's fair that puts us at a 22 out of 30 in this section and we will now go to trial point four. Now, disclaimer to our listeners, this is a very, very complicated, long-term plot line that ran for years in the comics through Jonathan Hickman's Avengers, New Avengers, and Secret Wars, and then still carried over into other titles. So my summary is succinct here, but it's a little longer than normal as I read this out. Be patient. Back with the Illuminati, Namor became aware of incursions, cosmic events resulting in two universes existing on top of each other with their respective Earths as the focal point. Uh, if one Earth was not destroyed, both would expire. Uh, so one had to be destroyed in order for the planet to survive, otherwise both worlds would be gone. In response to Namor's war on Wakanda, Black Panther, now Shuri, the uh, sister of T'Challa, had an army devastate Atlantis, an act of war uh, in retaliation. Namor then, in order to get revenge, lied to the forces of Thanos, making them believe that Wakanda had an infinity gem when it did not. Thanos and the Black Order then attacked, and hundreds if not thousands more were killed as a result of his lie. Earth-616, which is our planet, then had an incursion with Earth-4,290,001, <laughs> which was protected by the team, the Great Society, 
And the Illuminati recognized that their own Earth was in imminent danger unless they handled this other planet. The methods they had used to survive other incursions were not working any longer. The heroes thought they were all ready to destroy this other planet. They all intended to, but in the end, they balked, so Namor did it himself. He fired a deadly device and killed billions on an entire other world. Uh, the other members of the Illuminati were horrified, and Black Panther savagely attacked him, saying he'd gone too far. Before he was kicked off the team, Namor then admitted, bragging, that he had sent his forces, the, the forces of Thanos against Wakanda, just to taunt T'Challa. This was in New Avengers Volume 2, 17, 19, 21, and 22. To counter the Illuminati, who he saw as unwilling to do what it takes to save the planet, Namor then formed a new cabal with members like Maximus the Mad, Terax, and Thanos, and he pointed them toward destroying worlds during incursions in order to save Earth. Over the following months, however, Namor watched the cabal destroy many worlds, but not just destroy them, they were slaughtered and tortured the innocents that lived on them and ravaged the planets first. Mm -hmm. Namor quickly realized he'd made a mistake, Feeling they'd gone too far, he went to Dr. Doom for help, but Doom refused him, saying, you should have come to me first. Namor then tried to lure the Cabal into a trap to defeat them, but Thanos beat him up and teleported the team back to Earth. This was told in New Avengers Volume 223 and Avengers World 18 through 21. Lastly, when things went too far over a period of months, Namor agreed to work with Captain America and the heroes so that they could put a, a stop to these events. He admitted he was wrong to destroy that other planet. And he agreed to submit to a trial when the incursions were over. Perhaps that trial is happening today. He agreed to lure the Cabal into a trap on a dead world and then blow it up to stop them. Before Namor could escape this, this, uh, this devastated planet, Black Panther and Black Bolt betrayed him, stabbing him and, leaving him and left him wounded on this dead world in order for it to blow up. But he still escaped with the Cabal to another planet and survived. There's a lot more that happened after that. That's where we get the secret wars and the battle war storyline. And Namor's part of all of it. But we're going to contain the trial to that section. That story was told in Avengers Volume 5, Numbers 40 and 41. Let's turn it over to Justin for the prosecution and then Sarah for the defense. And I'm just now realizing I pitted you two against each other twice. <laughs> My fellow jury members, I am but a civilian, but I understand the necessities of war. Uh, the conflicts that come when fighting for and defending your home. And when two heroes are fighting for their people, it's hard to tell who is in the right and who is in the wrong. But you know who isn't a hero? Thanos. Namor directed the Mad Titans Black Order to destroy a fellow country. No remorse, no regret, only a bragging pride for his actions as he taunted Wakanda's hero, Black Panther, T'Challa. Now, in this council of brilliant minds, the Illuminati, a council of heroes, he alone made the rash decision to end a conversation prematurely and attack another world's champions. Ultimately, I agree with where he went, but he ended that discussion before they exhausted all options. He incited a war on a multiversal level, and he alone delivered the killing blow destroying the other earth, sacrificing all the innocent lives of that planet. I think a lot can be said about the company you keep. Namor's assembled a team of world destroyers hell-bent on taking away life on a scale otherwise unseen. All the angels have fallen and the devils are all that remain, a direct quote from him as he acknowledges who they are 
this team is assembled and relishes in their new focus. Villains do villain things. Rejected by the heroes that we know and love, the heroes of the Marvel Universe, he embraced another side and was very much so on the wrong side of the law and should be condemned for such action. Thank you. And Sarah? Um, I'm not going to defend this man for killing Wakandans. I think that that's really messed up, honestly, and it's hard to justify what he does here. I can say that he does see the error of his ways. I think he sees the error of his ways way too late. I think that it is important to keep in mind that he is completely in control of himself, I think, during this entire run, and he makes some of the worst mistakes that anybody has ever made in the Marvel Universe. And so you can't really defend that. However, you can say that I was confused during this story, so I can only assume he was confused. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that he doesn't know what's going on, what's right from wrong, I mean, neither do I. I'm very puzzled by what's happening through this whole arc. I read the highlights. I feel like I need to read this story maybe 15 or 16 more times before it makes any sense to me, honestly. I will say that he himself volunteered to go on trial. He himself gave himself up. He got the justice of the streets from everybody who just full out stabbed him in the chest. And that's, you know, that's fine. But that's almost the end of the day, isn't it? Like, what are you going to do to him after that? He already got stabbed in the chest, you know, like, what else do you want? Did he not serve his time being stabbed in the chest? Oh man. Uh, yeah, this is a rough one, man. <laughs> like, it's, hard to, it's hard to defend him for this one. He's kind of awful. And he um, teams up with Thanos, you know, like it's yeah. just a, it's a rough one. Um, all I can say is, is that I don't really think, well, no, I do think it's actually worse than other things he's done. I will say that this man has been out of control for a long time and that there's a lot of people who have enabled him. There's a lot of people who have kept him going and like not ever really tried to hold him to account. I know that he's a difficult person to hold to account, but the fact that it had to get this bad before somebody was like, hey, we need to like rein you in, I think is actually something where maybe we need to talk to the other heroes as well because they have to take some kind of responsibility for the fact that they have this absolute wild card who keeps going off killing a bunch of people for some reason none of the rest of them seem to care as much you know it's like they're like well that's black panther's problem like he's gonna deal with that you know or something and it's just like i just i feel like this is a big thing a lot of people should be involved in and that it was mishandled honestly so this is two sections for me in my brain as i'm thinking data Part one is the saving of the planet by destroying other planets. And even working with Thanos in my mind, he saved our Earth multiple times, but it was ultimately, I don't know, inefficient because the planet got destroyed anyway at the end uh, and then remade, blah, 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 comic books. But uh, I, you could almost mark his actions as justifiable, even though he did dark things because he saved the planet. But... The rest of it comes across like uh, Game of Thrones to me almost. So he's controlled by the Phoenix Force. He sends the tidal waves into Wakanda. They respond by killing Atlanteans because it's like an act of war. And then he could have ended it there. But it's almost like he saw these innocent Wakandans as like 
a lesson he needed to teach T'Challa or payback. It's some sort of like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something like game of Thrones style where just a whole bunch of people died for no reason. God, it's good storytelling though. Uh, and, and Sarah, and to, to quantify your point, it's a very complicated story and you have to read like 150 comics to get the whole thing. Like Hickman world built this over like six years. It was crazy and amazing. Uh, and there's a lot of pieces, but, um, that, yeah, that second part is almost worse. The killing of thousands is almost worse to me in this than the killing of billions, which is interesting. And, uh, and I almost want to agree with his recognition of this is a necessary evil. If he had explored other options and given space for another approach, you know, who knows that that meeting between the Illuminati and the heroes of the other earth where they came to it without a world ending weapon. And it's like, well, we got this world ending weapon. We can destroy you when we need to, because we need to. And, and I feel like the premature ending of that conversation left him unopened to exploring a more peaceable solution. The scene where Black Panther has to tell Namor that soldiers have killed Atlanteans. He's like very remorseful and respectful. Right. But the scene when Namor admits that he, like, I'm the one that's responsible. He's like bragging and boastful yeah. and laughing in T'Challa's face. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, clarifying questions and or comments from the other jury members that you need in this section. So in terms of pure body count, um, we're talking thousands of Wakandans and how many billions of other people on other yeah. Earth? Yeah. I mean, they destroyed lots of Earths. Okay, so the price of our survival was multiples of of what we're what we're surviving or keeping or preserving. Yeah, and then again, Games of Thrones, right? Like he allied with the wrong people and watched them rape and torture and kill and maim instead of just killing humanely. Uh, that was another part, like of his hubris. It was an interesting exploration for him. Hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, this is a chunky one. This is hard to. This one's hard to to swallow. Or to yeah, I, I commend Sarah for accepting the challenge of defending <laughs> these actions because I am I glad. I say I defended them. No, no, no. I, and I hear that too. <laughs> uh, okay, Susan, do you want to go first here? Oh, geez, I'm gonna do. Yeah, this was as you say, it's a chunky one. I'm gonna do uh, five. Uh, and, uh, Noel. I've, I mean, I get making difficult decisions that other people aren't willing to make, but with everything else, nothing but a five. Five for me as well. And it's interesting continuity wise, when ta Coates came on Black Panther, this is kind of where he started from. Like our borders have been broken. Our people have been killed and it's all fucking Namor's fault. And how do we rebuild? And now they've launched into like a galactic empire, right? Like it's crazy what they're doing in those comics. Uh, let's go to uh, Derek next. So uh, I'm still keeping up my policy of being against murder. And we're measuring the murders with exponents here, like a lot of exponents. Mm -hmm. So like 10 to the 9 or 10 to the 10 or 10 to the 11 people. But the other thing is all of those were other Earths, right? Mm -hmm. That's a crap ton of elephants. Um, I'm going to go five. <laughs> Eric, I love it. Uh, Sarah. Yeah, man, I'm going to go five too, but I got to say, I'm going to put some other people on a three, honestly. Like there's a bunch of people who are complicit in this situation. I think that Namor has been out of control for a long time, you know? So it's like, 
I don't know. Like they're not on trial right now, but I got to say like the way that this all plays out, it's something where we could have had an intervention way before this ever happened. And maybe people should have seen the warning signs coming. Brilliant. And uh, Justin. It's a clean five for me, no question. And it's just how much the impact was and, and the alliances within and how that resonated across multiple earths. Uh, this is one of the few 30s we've had on the trial, but this is a big one. This is the biggest section of any character we've covered so far, as far as casualties go. Uh, a friend just texted me and said, how's the trial going? I said, fine, we're talking a lot about eyebrows and elephants. And he said, what the hell? <laughs> the Namor story, eyebrows and elephants. <laughs> All right, so we're going to finally go to uh, trial point five. This is our last one. It's called The Defenders of the Deep. Uh, this is mostly in Jason Aaron's uh, really lengthy Avengers run in the modern comics, as well as covering Chip Zdarsky's Invaders run uh, one through 12 a few years ago, which is a brilliant read. If you haven't, go give it a read. It's great. Uh, prosecution is Derek here. The defense is Susan. When Atlantis was destroyed yet again, this time by a celestial, Namor armed sharks with offensive weaponry and began gathering underwater allies, including his enemies, Tiger Shark, Blood Tide, and Orca. When Stingray, the hero, refused to join him, Namor savagely beat him for hesitating. After stealing water-manipulating powers from Hydro Man, who he kept against his will, Namor savagely attacked a group of Roxxon agents who had polluted Wakanda, or excuse me, polluted Atlantis, and he killed them in the cells they were being held in. Namor continued to watch his own people struggle and die, so he led more aggressive attacks on the surface, including destroying the underwater city of Hydropolis and sending the scientists away. The Winter Guard and the Avengers had a savage battle with the Defenders of the Deep, Haunted by an image of Makon in his brain, that's the Xavier identity that had been created decades before to soothe him, Namor forced a group called the Sea Blades to join his cause by threatening to kill them if they didn't. He then escalated a war with a surface world. After several soldiers were killed, Namor beheaded Jim Hammond, the original Human Torch, who is a robot, then hit an American town full of thousands of innocents and permanently transformed them into water breathers before flooding their city, making them permanent underwater uh, uh, citizens. As the Atlantean conflict escalated, Namor began to realize he was losing his memories. He obtained the Serpent Crown, which is a crazy artifact powered by the Elder Gods that gives you lots of control of things. Uh, he used that, uh, uh, excuse me, Makon, once Namor put that on his head, Makon, the identity, used the crown to form his own body, which was combined with Roman Peterson. He separated himself from Namor, uh, so he now has an external thing that came from his mind, who's now a villain. It's very onslaught in that way. Uh, Namor allied himself with the invaders and turned against Makon, allowing scientists who had worked on the species-changing compound to be killed. In the end, Makon was imprisoned, and Namor vowed to stop making the compound. Again, he has now joined the Avengers as a result of all of this after being ousted from his throne again. This is a complicated set of stories that weave together kind of beautifully, but it's a little bit chunky as well. Uh, let me turn it over uh, to uh, Derek for the prosecution. So we're asking the jury to judge redeeming and condemning qualities based on Namor's actions. We're asking the jury to vote on how villainous or culpable Namor is. Let me offer the TLDR statement on this. Namor is culpable, murderous, villain worthy of the harshest condemnation. Now, where do we begin with this? Should we begin with the aggravated assault on Hydro Man? 
Hydro-Man's powers are an intrinsic, unalterable part of his identity, and Namor altered that by force. It's a violation of Hydro-Man's personhood. Or is it the forcible confinement, the illegal medical procedures without consent on the thousands of people uh, in the seaboard town where they became essentially another species, unable to continue their lives, their careers, their families, or their history on land? Or are we looking at the assault on Stingray? Six months in hospital and physiotherapy, the victim's statement says it most clearly, I can no longer find Nemo. Or are we looking to find redemption in the murder of prisoners waiting on their trial? Or are we hoping to find uh, some good in the attack on Hydropolis? Hardly. We're talking again about aggravated assault and attempted murder. And since it was in international waters, the closest next possible crime is actually piracy, um, which I haven't prosecuted in a while. The only thing that stopped him was the timely intervention of the Avengers and the Winter Guard. Now, the defense may tell you, members of the jury, that Neymar was not in his right mind. That he was a compromised and he was not responsible because of both failed and successful at mental manipulations by the serpent crowned and the mutant villain, Charles Xavier. This defense is a smokescreen. Is Namor's brutal attack on Hydropolis different in any way than his attack on New York in the 1940s, long before there was any mental manipulation? Is Namor's murder of those awaiting trial any different from the murders of the first humans he ever met as a teen? Is the assault and flooding of the American town any different than the murderous flooding in the capital of Wakanda? These mental manipulations happened early in Namor's life, and in that life, we considered Namor mentally competent enough to co-found the Defenders. Within that life, he was judged mentally competent enough to play nation builder with the X-Men. In that life, he was judged mentally competent enough to hold a security clearance and be a member of the Avengers. Namor has always been competent and has always made his own choices. He chose these actions and they are not an aberration. They fit squarely into a pattern of violent and murderous behavior and of poor fashion choices stretching back 80 years. Um, the defense counsel may try to explain these events away, uh, sorry, um, as, as consequences of mental manipulations. But if they do, I ask the jury and the court to insist that the counsel also explain the other 80 years of Namor's actions and why the defense should be allowed to pick and choose convenient exemptions merely for their client to slip free from the hand of justice like a wet fish. Welcome to Gray Malkin Lane, Susan Kirtley. <laughs> I'll turn it over to you. It's a, it's a trial by fire, certainly. Um, you know, I, at this point, um, drawing on my vast legal expertise that I quoted earlier, you know, Night Court and Ali McBeal, as well as my hidden weapon, which is my ability to search Google. Uh, I would like to assert that Namor is not guilty by reason of insanity. And the prosecution has argued this is a smokescreen and that um, the defendant must account, why is this different from New York? Why is this different from the 80, probably more than the many, many years of um, bad behavior? And I would assert that it is fundamentally different. I remember Oh, not, I don't know, an hour ago, I defended Namor in his attack, you know, his attack on, on New York, or, you know, I, 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 I prosecuted him for this behavior. But at that point, he was a different character in that he had not had the extent of manipulation. So we had Steen tampering with his head. Professor X did the same. And during this story arc, Namor is being guided by the projection. It's like 
you know, a fully formed human of Tommy McCann that Professor X implanted in his brain. This was not the case in these other circumstances. There's this guiding force that has been put in his head and is telling him what to do. And again, according to my expertise, as well as this quick Google search from a sort of dodgy legal website, quote, a defendant is not culpable for an act that because of a psychological infirmity, he or she did not know he or she was committing, end quote. So I do not think that there is a definitely a psychological infirmity. It is abundantly clear that at this point in the history, as opposed to New York and some of these other cases, he is not in full control of his faculties. He has multiple flashbacks. He thinks he's in a war. He talks to his imaginary friend all the time. I mean, he, he's guiding his behavior. He has outfitted sharks with lasers and armor. Is this the move of a sane individual? Also, I would like to point out at this point, his eyebrow is, is like very droopy instead of jaunty. If you're, if you're gauging these things, it is very disturbing. Now, once, this is another very important piece of evidence, once McCann is removed from his psyche, he feels guilt, he feels shame, he fights against this circumstance, he, he tries to make amends. But I think at this point, um, it is not a smokescreen. It is fundamentally different from the other circumstances. He has this controlling aberration, this uh, person, McCann, in his head, guiding his behavior. And I think we cannot, we talk about culpability. We can't convict a person who is so obviously not mentally competent. Fascinating. I thought you were going to go within his actions are justified. The, uh, the insane defense is fascinating. Did Professor X do this? <laughs> Should this have been in the Professor X, X trial? Fuck. <laughs> Next time. I, we, yeah, we should. Yeah, absolutely. Xavier just goes on trial again and again and again. So it's like chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. Every time we do one, we have to put Xavier on trial as well, because chances are. We did the Xavier trial. Now I feel like this should have been one of the points that is, geez. It's every time. <laughs> but I mean, was he, he convicted? Just... He was convicted, but we didn't yeah. include this, this okay. specific storyline. You can't over convict him, can you? That's uh, true. Yeah, That's true. yeah you can. <laughs> Uh, what do we need for this section in order to make decisions? The very compelling arguments. Are, are we ready to vote? I'm still chewing on mine. I'm going to be deciding as we go. Uh, let's start with Justin. Uh, I think I'm going to go with a three. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Noel. The Xavier defense is a really, really good one, especially for me. And also, I love how Nemo looks in those Avengers issues. That costume was just perfection. Um, so I think I'm going to go with it, too. Yeah, Sarah mentioned, like, wet, horny Namor earlier. Namor is very attractive in a lot of his appearances. <laughs> like, overly muscled. I would not be into him at all in real life, because gross. But uh, but he's nice to look at. Uh, I think my vote here is a three. I think, and nobody argued this necessarily, but I think there's some justifiable action. There seems to be a desperation on Namor's part. Like, the planet is fucking dying, and unless I do something... Uh, we're going to die with it. There seems to be a little bit of that desperation here that kind of leads to my thoughts on that. Uh, uh, Susan. One. Okay. It's all Xavier. 
Derek? So I think on par with murder, I'm against non-consensual medical treatments that are permanent in nature. So I'm going to go with a five. And uh, Sarah? with a three i'm gonna definitely give xavier a five and i'm gonna say if we are putting his outfits on trial i'm gonna say two morally concerning because (laughs) (laughs) he's out here flashing abs sir that is morally concerning however i like that you do it and i'm a big fan of um i think all genders look good in cleavage shirts and i think that namor does that like v-neck that goes all the way down to the belly button which i just think is great so i'm gonna say morally concerning certainly but you're working it. So that gives us a 17 out of 30. When we take the total score, that's 103 points out of 150 possible, which gives us a 69%, uh, which marks him right up there at the top of our uh, most culpable trials, along with Charles Xavier. Uh, yeah, exactly uh, so. Did you beat Charles? Uh, yes, he did. He came out higher than Charles slightly. A juggernaut's still our lowest defense. He was only at 44%. Uh, but it makes sense. This guy murdered billions. <laughs> uh, as we, are, uh, we haven't. Oh, please! You haven't put Mastermind on trial. We're going to talk know. about. We're going to talk about that at the end. Yeah, um, I expect him like uh, across the board fives. Uh, Derek and I were chatting earlier, and these were thoughts I wanted to just bring up very briefly as a discussion point at the end. During Chip Zdarsky's Invaders run, there are some homosexual undertones. Uh, between Namor's appearances, like he leaves the war and moves to the surface with this family and he seems to find peace and it kind of hints there's this guy he's at peace with. Uh, I've never seen another gay storyline, but it, there's there's an undertone there in Zdarsky's run that is really, really fascinating to uh, to just ruminate on. So I kind of fanfic like him and Doom a little bit. Like I'm kind of like, you too. <laughs> like, this is cute, you know, like... Um, like he like Doom wears the most clothes. Namor <laughs> wears the least clothes. Could it be love? And they support each other. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Namor would be open. You know, like he there's the there's that example. Um, Kieran Gillen has uh, Namor romancing that swamp monster, the River Queen. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. a fish creature, and like you know, he he solves a conflict by by basically romancing this swamp creature and i and 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 i and i feel like there's also some romantic tension i I also like there's that whole scene very early on where he's being shaved with the i mentioned this before like the the fire shave and they're sort of gazing soulfully into one another's eyes and i'm like you know i i I, yeah i i respect the swagger anymore and i feel like it's it's um very open you know Johnny Storm is for sure bisexual. And maybe that's yes. why Namor was into her sis- into his sister. <laughs> I just think too that like, this is what he should be focusing on. I feel like if women wrote Namor more than like his, it would be like a gambit thing where like, we don't like him. And then women write him and we're like, we love this guy. He's great. And I think that Namor would be a hundred percent that same guy where it's just like, he should be solving problems through sexiness instead of violence. Like it just <laughs> makes sense. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah. Um, putting this in the context, my final thought here, uh, on, on the fashion crimes, uh, we, we referenced Gabby Kinney earlier, uh, and how she calls him Abslantis. There's a scene in X-Men Red where they say Namor, oh, he, they've, he's allied with them. And they say, Namor, we need you for one more thing. And Gabby says, yeah, to put on some damn clothes. 
she's the only one asking him to do that. I'm a lesbian and I'm like, buddy, you look great. Like you make the less the rest of us look terrible in comparison to you, but I still think that you should go for it. Oh, I look forward to these moments where we just get to nerd out with each other all month. This has been so fun. Uh, assembling a group of just people that I respect and, and love. I had a blast today. Thank you all for the gifts of your time and talents and for sticking with us on a long trial recording. Uh, as we are wrapping up, let's uh, let's uh, let people know where they can find you online. And uh, recognizing this episode is scheduled to come out on August 4th, is there anything that you'd like to announce or plug based on things that you are currently working on? Uh, Grey Malkin Lane has some really incredible content. We are booked recording-wise well into October at this point, which is amazing. Uh, there's a lot really, a lot of really incredible stuff coming up that I can't wait to announce, including some really extraordinarily huge names that I'm really, really pumped about. Um, in our next episode, we're going to be reviewing, Sarah's coming back, we're going to be reviewing uh, uh, Hank Pym, or excuse me, Yellow Jacket and the Wasps uh, 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 Avengers Wedding with an X-Men appearance. It's maybe my favorite 60s book of all the 60s books. Uh, and we'll be featuring an interview with the, uh, the colorist Triana Farrell. After that, we're back to X-Men 52 with Ian Churchill coming on the pod. Uh, so let's go to uh, Derek next. Oh, oh, uh, pardon me. You can find Gray Malkin Lane, uh, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram or Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter. We also have put, been putting out some Patreon episodes, which are so much fun. Uh, a couple of people here coming back for some of those soon. Uh, and we also just released our first T-shirt. So if you haven't looked at those, they're also uh, a wonderful blast. So I needed to finish that before we transitioned. Uh, go ahead, Derek. Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, just my name with no spaces, Derek Kunskin, D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N. Um, I also have a website with the same thing. Uh, I don't have any new announcements. I had a book come out a month and a half ago, I think. Uh, House of Sticks came out in uh, softcover. And I think my publisher has now announced that I have a collection coming out in December, which is cool. It's going to be called... Uh, Flight from the Ages and Other Stories, which is a fun first collection. So that's great. Wonderful. Uh, Noelle. Yeah, you can find uh, my podcast, X-Men Unraveled, um, wherever podcasts are, and then at X-Men Unraveled on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'll be coming up on Namor's uh, appearance in the early X-Men pretty soon, so that will be fun. Um, always love these. It's funny because I hate Professor Xavier, who came out with a similar score uh, more than anyone, but I still don't hate Namor at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I, I meant to ask that too, uh, as we're wrapping up, I'll go back to Derek quickly. Any final thoughts on Namor or anything that just is kind of sticking with you as we wrap up the trial? Derek, did you want to say anything there? Uh, I just, um, like, I think he's always been sort of a secondary character for me to read. Like, I will not seek him out, but if he's in a story, I don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess I just, this trial made me realize just how much genocide he's been involved in. So, yeah, that <laughs> changes things. How many elephants he slapped. <laughs> uh, Justin, you can go next. My name is Justin, and I am the co-host of the Ex-Wife podcast that is T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E, -E, like X-Men, not former wife. You can find us every week talking about the current Krakoa-era books, asking questions, trying to figure out what's going on between these characters and illuminating the curiosities of a brand new fan to the X-Men franchise. Everywhere you get your podcasts at the Ex-Wife podcast. Wonderful. One of my favorites. Uh, and then let's go to Susan next. 
Uh, I am uh, Susan and I'm a hermit. And so you really, it's hard to find me, um, uh, but I am uh, the director of comics at Portland State. So you can email me at skirtly at pdx.edu or at the Portland State Comics website. We do have uh, cool events, um, you know, virtual events and different authors coming in to talk um, from time to time. So you're welcome to find me there. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed. And my final thoughts, I just, I, I really came to a new appreciation of Namor, who I kind of, you know, saw in the background and, and, and uh, enjoyed. And uh, I really enjoyed sort of delving into his history. So thank you. Wonderful. And then finally, Sarah. Uh, yeah, finally, Sarah. Finally me. I am Sarah Century still, and I do the Bitches on Comics podcast, which you can find at bitchesoncomics.com. We also have a Twitter account that you can follow. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. I have a website, sarahcentury.com. I also am part of the Decoded Pride anthology, which is a queer speculative fiction anthology that does PDFs of 30 queer speculative fiction stories every single year, and it's decodedpride.com. We're an independent publisher. So if you buy a subscription, we extra appreciate it. All right. I had a great time today. I'm going to be thinking about Namor for days. This was a lot of fun. Uh, our next trial on Gray Malkin Lane is actually not going to be a trial. We always announce at the end of these. We're going to have a group much like this, but coming together to have a focused discussion on the history of Cerebro, which is, again, maybe the nerdiest thing I've ever done, but we had a lot of fun putting it together uh, and it's gonna be a lot of fun to present. Uh, after that, I'll go ahead and pre-announce, we're gonna have a dual trial of the characters Mastermind and Mesmero, both who have very rapey powers and <laughs> we'll have a lot to nice. talk about. Uh, thank you, everybody. This was a delight. Uh, we will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Alkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Alkin Lane.